Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. My name is Seth Ate My Neighbors. And I am Dr. Eric Gadd. There's a good bit of news to get to this week, like the Treehouse Live and new details emerging on Super Nintendo World. But the spooky content isn't stopping anytime soon, because in this week's Indie Showcase, we're talking about one of the scariest games we've actually played in years. Detention by Red Candle Games. It actually still freaks me out a little bit just thinking about it. Yeah, me too. And I can't wait to talk about that game. I actually just read that they made a movie adaptation apparently in Taiwan. It's too bad we don't speak Taiwanese Mandarin because I'd actually love to watch that. Huh, you don't say. But our Halloween celebrations are only just beginning because in this week's top five, we're counting down the scariest moments in Nintendo non-horror games. And you may be surprised at some of our picks. And we're going to close out this week by weighing in on some recent discourse within the Nintendo community. Has the company become anti-consumer? Let's talk about it. It's time to go all in. Okay, okay. What what are you doing on the computer? Because last time that you did some sneaky computer stuff, we wound up with tens of thousands of dollars of Halloween decorations. Uh, Well, I'm doing something to better us, to make us better people. And honestly, why are you complaining about the Halloween decorations? This place looks amazing now. Perfect for Halloween. So just trust me on this. It'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you that. But I mean, hey, let's... Let's get into it. Let's not keep the folks waiting anymore. We got a show to do. What's been going on this week? Oh, uh, well, gearing up more for spooky season. Been trying to watch a couple uh, horror movies. I did wind up watching a few guilty pleasure horror movies. But nice. Uh, yeah, uh, I did watch Anaconda. I, I, I can't help it. I'm an I'm an 80s and 90s person, so it's it's. I don't know. Don't judge me, dude. No, dude. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I'm on the Anaconda train with you, sir. Uh, that just became a meme. <laughs> yeah, but I have been playing a lot of games as well. I've been, in my second life in Animal Crossing, I have been turning as much of my island as possible into Halloween Town. And uh, I couldn't help it. I've just been playing so much Super Mario 3D All-Stars. I beat Mario Galaxy as Luigi, so I'm basically just cleaning up at this point. I don't have too much left before I've 100%ed the entire collection, and it just makes Eric happy to be playing that. But I've also been putting in a lot more time with Mario, uh, Super Mario 35, which nice. I've got to say I'm actually really good at. Uh, <laughs> I'm consistently able to get number one finishes, not to brag too much. Humble brag, humble brag. Yeah, but I just uh, there's so much that I've been messing around on. Obviously, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but I did play through the Pikmin 3 Deluxe demo that they released this past week. Oh, cool. So just a lot of little things, a lot of little things. And I think that theme is actually going to carry on for a few minutes. Yeah, it's been, as I like to say, it's been a big, a big week for small news. Yeah, for me, not a whole lot, to be honest. My life has been really crazy this week. As I mentioned last week, we are moving into a new house. Uh, we have... Uh, been cleaning said house 
for the past week, really hardcore. Just my wife and I almost every night after work going over there and cleaning a lot of work to be done. And you have not enjoyed it. (laughs) It's not been fun. And then just like having to buy like new furniture and appliances and stuff for the new house. I mean, it's like some like just the numbers that I'm having to confront and the drives I'm having to make. And it's, it's nuts, man. It's been a whirlwind experience. And then on top of it, uh, down here where I'm at in Louisiana, we actually have another hurricane, Hurricane Delta, headed this way. And you know, luckily, it's not going to be as bad as Laura was. And uh, at the time of this recording, it has not actually hit yet. So fingers crossed. But um, you know, it's it's just been crazy. So not a whole lot of video game playing for me. Uh, I've been doing a bunch of Animal Crossing though, every chance I get. Uh, like you, gearing up for Halloween, harvesting my pumpkins. My absurd amount yes. of pumpkins. <laughs> Dude, I, like every like two or three days now, it's just like, oh, hi, 180 pumpkins. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, when we have that Halloween party on Hotaru, I want to see the entire island with jack-o'-lanterns all over the place. I'll be honest, there, I've, I have gotten a pretty good amount of Halloween things on the island, so... <laughs> I I've got some Halloween stuff in the entrance. My little party pavilion that I made is all Halloweened out and uh, my house is Halloweened out. So I've been having a lot of fun with that. They really did even with that simple update. I mean, they have added so much more life to the game and uh, you know, it's gotten my wife back into it. We're getting all of our spooky DIYs and whatnot. And it's, it's been a lot of fun, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, animal crossing really is the main thing. That, that I've been playing this week. I just really haven't had like time or space for anything else. But uh, yeah, as we kind of alluded to, it's been a big week for small news. So how about we get into it? Uh, let's get into all the big little news. Hey, listen. All right. Very quickly before we get into the news, we would, uh, we just want to give a big shout out to our friends over at the Nintendo dads who this past yes. Thursday just streamed their 300th episode. Kudos, guys. Love you. Congratulations on 300 episodes. Yes. Big congrats to them. 300 episodes is a huge milestone. Here's the 300 more. Yeah, that's six years of doing one every week. Yeah. I I jumped into the uh, I jumped into the live stream as they were recording it uh, just to say hi and, and wish them congratulations and whatnot. And uh, Justin was like, yeah, my daughter was four when we started doing this show. <laughs> Man. So. It's a long time, man. So yeah, you know, big ups to those guys. Yeah, six years of producing a show every week is no small undertaking. So once again, congratulations to the Nintendo Dads on episode 300. Now, to get into the news proper, last week, one of the things we mentioned uh, at the beginning of the news segment last week was the fact that our episode was essentially happening concurrently with the Sakurai Presents Minecraft Steve and Minecraft Alex and Smash Brothers presentation. Thanks, Nintendo. Yeah, since we didn't get to talk about it a lot last week, except for our initial impressions from the reveal trailer, we will get to talk just a little bit about our impressions of Alex and Steve's gameplay now. And you know what? I wasn't really excited for Steve initially, but he looks really interesting. This has got to be the single most complicated, in-depth character in the game, as far as I'm concerned. All of the things that this character can do and the maneuvers. I was actually, 
like Sakurai made a quick little note in the present uh, presentation where he was like, yeah, we haven't been able to, you know, QA as much as we normally would. I'm like, yeah, I can tell because Steve's going to be super OP. <laughs> Probably. I mean, once you start realizing what a lot of his attacks are going to be capable of, uh, because Steve, it astounds me how they're able to so effortlessly fit in mechanics from other games that have nothing to do with fighting games. And somehow they're still able to translate that into Smash Brothers because Steve and Alex and Zombie and Enderman are going to be doing most of the same stuff you do in Minecraft. You are going to be mining the stage for materials. You are going to be increasing the sturdiness and the effectiveness of your tools like your sword and your pickaxe. Uh, you are going to be creating blocks. You're going to be creating a lot of blocks. And that is one of the main both defensive and offensive mechanics of Steve is being able to create platforms to both, you know, land on and to, you know, prevent people from getting back on the stage. Some of the stuff they oh. showed out in the presentation just looked savage. Oh, yeah. Do they like they showcase like Steve's got he can make that minecart that essentially is like a projectile grab, like literally throwing you off the stage. And then to which point he can then run off and then just create like a block barrier to keep you from getting back on it. I mean, if you're going to, if you are good with Steve and if you're fast enough with Steve, that is going to be the ultimate troll character in this game. I can see a lot of people being uncomfortably good with Steve the day he comes out. And when we say the day he comes out, Steve comes out Tuesday. Yes. October 13th. Yes. Going to be very interested. We'll definitely have our full thoughts on Steve uh, next week, but based on everything we saw in the Sakurai presentation, Super, super interesting. And before we move on from that, I think we just want to give a quick shout out to the me costumes. Yeah, pour one out. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple. There was a Rayman looking pig from Minecraft that's going to be a costume. There was a creeper from Minecraft, which is probably the most obviously predictable costume they could have added from Minecraft. And then they have the diamond armor that you'll also be able to outfit. However, there were a couple other ones. You have the ones of most note are going to be the Bomberman costumes, which look really, really good. Still kind of wish Bomberman had been fitted into a main roster slot, but still, yeah, right? still very interested. Well, I understand why they didn't, because I mean, a move set for Bomberman, it's you only really do one thing in the game in terms That's of true. offense. So trying to trying to craft an entire move set out of that honestly an assist trophy was the best he could hope for it, it would have been a stretch but yeah i mean look we got an assist trophy we now have some really good really faithful looking uh me fighter costumes for Bomberman. you can't really say and ask for too much more than that but of course we've also got gil from the tower of draga uh which was cool so yeah, that's cool there's a few fans out there of that game so happy for them that they have some representation yeah, but you know, yeah. the, the 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 main one, you know, pour one out for my boy. A character they could have very easily come up with an entire move set for. Travis touchdown from No More Heroes, now effectively deconfirmed as a playable fighter. I mean, I'd never say never, I guess, but I don't think we've ever seen a character that was once or ever a like a me fighter become a full-fledged fighter in the game. It kind of wouldn't make sense. 
Well, it's happened a couple times, just not within the same game. Right. Yeah, in Super Smash Bros. Wii U, they had K. Rule costumes, Mii Fighter costumes. They had an Inkling Mii Fighter costume. And those wound up becoming full-fledged characters in the next game. Yes. However, uh, yeah, for all intents and purposes, it looks like Travis Touchdown has been officially deconfirmed for this game, at least for Smash Brothers Ultimate. But to be honest, if they still went ahead and confirmed Travis Touchdown, that would be like the most Suda 51 thing ever. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And, you know, to, to his absolute credit, Suda is being really cool about it on Twitter. He's just like super gracious that his game is being included in, in Smash at all. So he he's super happy about Travis being a, a me fighter costume. But yeah, I really do think Travis could have been such a cool character in Smash. And I'm a big No More Heroes fan. So it did break my heart ever so slightly. But, you know, it's so hard to be disappointed with anything or to ask for anything more than we've already gotten. <laughs> so I can't be too upset. It would not surprise me at all if there were actually more Travises online on Tuesday than there were Steve's. Yeah, that wouldn't shock me either. So, but you know, I'll definitely be making my Travis touchdown me fighter and uh, pretending. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me, me, me too. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> now to go along with the pattern of us having a Nintendo presentation every four or five days or so, yeah. we got another one right in the middle of the week. We got a the the return actually of Nintendo Treehouse Live showing off Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity and the brand new Pikmin 3 Deluxe coming out in just a couple weeks. Yeah, this is the first Treehouse Live they did since like Bakugan, right? I don't even know if that was a real Treehouse Live. That was something, but I mean there's a hazy memory. Yeah. Still shades of E3 floating through. <laughs> But again, the first thing they showed off was Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity. They showed off Link gameplay. They showed off gameplay for Urbosa. They showed off gameplay for Zelda, who looks nuts, by the way. Uh, in the gameplay yeah. they showed off, the return of the Koroks, they showed off almost, it seems, accidentally. They showed, I mean, based on the gameplay they showed, it definitely looks like a Musou game. It definitely looks like this type of game just absolutely insane combos completely over the top super attacks but they did show off a few very interesting things in age of calamity as well they have the full hyrule map uh it looks like the map is almost cut and paste from breath of the wild i say almost because it's clearly not but it looks very familiar it looks like they're still going with the same topographical stuff from you know from Breath of the Wild, and it looks like they're basing the missions even off of that topography. So that should actually be really interesting, especially for people who are familiar with the map. Uh, maybe they can even use that to their advantage sometimes. It's pretty cool because they they have got, you know, all these locations that we saw in Breath of the Wild as being dilapidated and stuff like that. And now, uh, of course, this is 100 years in the past, so we're actually seeing it the way it looked when it was alive and well, and that's pretty cool. Somebody pointed out that there is a village on the map called Mabe Village. So that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, very interested to dive in more and see all the different locales. They also confirmed that cooking is coming back from Breath of the Wild. You'll be able to cook and craft food to give your character buffs and presumably even restore their health. So 
it looks like they're going out of their way to find ways to reincorporate things from Breath of the Wild into Hyrule Warriors. So more and more, this is almost feeling like a sequel or a, a pre a prequel rather a prequel. Yeah, I mean, everything I see about this game gets me more and more excited for it. I, at this point, I'm just like waiting for November 20th. <laughs> and, you know, my girl Impa. Of course, yeah. Of course, Impa. And not just <laughs> Impa. As a matter of fact, prior to the Nintendo Treehouse Live, we got a trailer that showed off a couple other characters, didn't we, Seth? That's right. We got an awesome trailer, actually, showing off Pura and Robbie as they were 100 years in the past. And that was just brilliant, man. I love it. I love how like over the top it is you, that that iconic pose, the personalities in full effect. It's really cool actually because for Pura's design, uh, they actually looked like they went into the old concept art for Breath of the Wild and pulled directly from that. So really interesting to see what they did with those characters, and I can't wait to see what they do in the story of this game. I mean, that's the thing that we keep driving home every time we talk about it. Every time Nintendo's shown this game we're getting like full proper cutscenes. I mean, this is going to be a canonical, no nonsense breath of the wild prequel story. And they are really pushing that story hard for this game. This isn't like we said last week, this is definitely not just going to be some turn your brain off type of adventure. They are really pushing the story and the narrative elements of this game hard. So expect that to, uh, to be a big part of the experience. I, I honestly, like, I, I am more impressed and more interested in this game every time we see it. And the more I think about it, I, I'm like, I can't really think of a more ingenious way to build up that hype again for Breath of the Wild 2. Like, if, if there are folks who, are, who have fallen off of Breath of the Wild, who uh, have sort of put that in the past and have moved on, this is the perfect game to get you back into the fold. And, and the style of gameplay makes so much sense in this time frame. Uh, I mean, it's the perfect thing to like rehype everybody and reacclimate everybody with this world. Uh, I'm yeah. so excited. Yeah, I'm super, super excited as well. So uh, we just have a little over a month before that game drops in our laps, and we're very excited to check that out. Now, the other game from Nintendo Treehouse Live that they showed off was, again, the forthcoming Pikmin 3 Deluxe, dropping on the 30th of this month, just in time for Halloween. So if you've played Pikmin 3, then this should all be very familiar to you. And if you've played a Pikmin game, really, this should all be very familiar to you. They right. showed off some gameplay with Brittany. They showed off some gameplay with Alf. Uh, they just showed him running around doing some Pikmin things, you know, pulling some Pikmin out of the ground and doing some Pikmin stuff. They did show off some really interesting new additions, though. Apparently, the entire story mode this time is going to be co-op. That's pretty cool. It is local co-op. They haven't shown off anything about online multiplayer yet, possibly in a future update. But still, the fact that we're getting a full co-op campaign out of a Nintendo game is really interesting. The thing, the thing that's interesting about that is, you know, it's not necessarily easy. You can't just really tack that on. You don't just flip a co-op switch. So goes into something we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show when we get into our main discussion segment of how this isn't just a lazy port. You know, they, they've done a lot of work and that's just to the base game because, I mean, they showed off some entirely new content, correct? Yeah, uh, they showed off the Piclopedia a little bit, which they already uh, announced through their social media channels, Facebook and Twitter. However, they also showed off a couple modes that uh, have Olimar and Louie in them. And for those who haven't played Pikmin 3, Olimar uh, uh, and Louie are not the main characters of this game. However, 
they are very much the faces of the franchise still, especially since they're the playable characters that made it into Smash Brothers. That's kind of the character that everybody always associates with any franchise is because of right. Smash Brothers. But they still brought Olimar and Louie back in for a couple of different game modes, one of which in particular I'm really excited for. The first of which is uh, like a timed treasure hunt mode where you're placed onto a... Uh, you're placed onto a map and you're basically just said, okay, do as much as you can in however, uh, like 12 minutes or however long. And that looks, you know, like it might be fun, like like it might be interesting. But the, the mode that I'm really, really excited for that I think I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of is an actual Pikmin PvP mode that they're calling bingo mode or uh, bingo card mode or something. But... Uh, essentially it's the same kind of concept as they place both characters onto a map. You both each have your own squad of Pikmin and you can each get to the same resources, but all the different resources on the map are aligned in a four by four grid on the bottom of the screen on each player's screen. And the way you win is if you're able to get four of the resources on the map across, down, or presumably even diagonally on this four by four card. So if you wind up getting a strawberry, then it might behoove you to go after the resources that are either next to or above and below that strawberry. And maybe if you notice that your opponent has gotten something, it might behoove you to go after something that might block them from getting four across or four up and down. It's basically going to be like Connect Four with Pikmin, and it looks really, really fun. I was just going to say, this is this sounds like Connect Four Pikmin, basically. Yeah, they're calling it Bingo or something, but yeah, Connect Four is is probably the best way to describe it. I mean, I'm down for that. It, it honestly just looks so much fun. I'm really excited to go through the story mode, of course. You know, again, I... I ashamedly confessed a while back that I had never played a Pikmin game before. So this is going to be my first foray into the Pikmin franchise. Of course, like I mentioned earlier, I did download and play through the Pikmin 3 demo already. So I've now officially played Pikmin content for the first time in my life. Very happy to finally say that, but very excited to check out the full game, uh, both the story and you and I are definitely going to have to get online and play uh, this bingo mode. Yeah, I'm totally down. I mean, I'm excited too. I Pikmin, you know, I played Pikmin one and two on the Wii. As a matter of fact, I really enjoyed it there. Uh, but Pikmin three never got around to it. Slipped through the cracks. It, you know, was on the Wii U. I think that's probably the story for a lot of folks. So for us, for you know, newcomers to the series, for people who maybe missed it on Wii U, I, I think Pikmin three Deluxe is going to be a great, great package, and and I'm really looking forward to it actually. So. Coming out at a good time. There's a free demo available now on the eShop with full save data transfer into the full version of the game if you buy it. So, yep. yeah. And not only that, if you're one of those people that likes a little challenge in their Nintendo games, if you do play through the Nintendo eShop demo of Pikmin 3 Deluxe, then you automatically, you initially lock the extra hard, quote unquote, ultra spicy difficulty when the game launches i like that yeah when the game launches on october 30th typically you'd have to beat the game on hard to unlock that but if you beat the demo then you'll immediately have that extra hard mode unlocked again if you're somebody who likes a little extra spice in their challenge ultra spicy pikmin connect four i'm into it 
<laughs> well, once we get done doing that, we may need to go ahead and book a flight to Japan because uh, <laughs> Universal Studios Japan announced this week that it is finally kind of lifting the veil on their plans to have Super Nintendo World open next spring. So that's really exciting. Hmm, maybe we can learn Japanese while we're at it. Huh. So that's it's really exciting, and they've also got the Mario Cafe and store opening in the Hollywood area of Universal Studios Japan. That's yes. actually happening soon, uh, October sixteenth. That's happening, and they've they've showcased all of the little treats and drinks they're going to have, and and I just need all of it. I need it all. Yeah. Now this is Super Nintendo World in Japan. We did yes. previously report on the indefinite delay of Super Nintendo World here in the US. And there is as of yet no new news on that front. However, they did confirm that Super Nintendo World is opening in Japan next year and I'm going to definitely need to start looking for cheap flights. <laughs> I mean seriously, it looks awesome. We we've seen plenty there's plenty of footage out there at this point. I can't wait for this to open so that I can live vicariously through the YouTubers that are going to go. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and see it all in action. But I, to be honest, like just seeing like the treats, like there's these little, like, it looks like ice cream sandwich kind of things with fruits and stuff that, shaped like a Mario and Luigi hat. Yeah. I, weird. Weirdly. It seems like the tagline they're going with is who's cap question mark. <laughs> like I thought that was kind of strange because they showcase like some merch that says who's cap. And then there's like a little edible thing on the sandwich that says who's cap. I thought that was so weird. Yeah, despite the fact that they're color coordinated, like we can't tell whose it is. Yeah, what a strange like Google Translate <laughs> thing. Oh, to... Japan. Yeah, you know, who's cap? Like it, it sounds like a bad game show, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, but you know, we, we saw that there's the, these like cool little fruity, like cream sodas that they've got with little, like, it almost looks like little star bits inside. It's just delightful with like straws that have the Mario mustache and peaches crown. And I I just, the, the merch for this is going to be awesome. And, and, uh, you know, booking flights to Japan, notwithstanding, uh, I, I hope that this comes to Orlando sooner rather than later, because, you know, I want to. I want to get on a cheaper domestic flight <laughs> yeah, and head to Orlando and experience this myself. Yeah. I'm sure Super Nintendo World is just a way for Nintendo to push even more Nintendo collectibles at us. But, you know, we can talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, we definitely will. But, uh, you know what? I it Man, it'd be so interesting if they had like a, like a Splatoon themed laser tag or something like that. Oh, that's be, a great idea. That'd be so cool. Oh. That's a great idea. Cause there's already a lot of like the VR augmented reality stuff. Yeah. So everybody's wearing like some VR glasses or something. It looks like you're throwing ink at people. That'd be great. Or maybe they do it. Like I went on a men in black last time I was at universal. I went on this men in black ride and it was, you know, a slow kind of cart ride, but you had yes. these little light pistols, men in black alien attack. My favorite ride in Universal. Yeah, so it was a ride, but you still had these little guns on the front of your carts that you could shoot the aliens all over, uh, all around you with. And that was really fun. Maybe they could do that with Splatoon or something. It's like a two track. Like, yeah, it's it almost feels like you're playing a light gun game in real life. 
and then like halfway through it, it's like, oh, hey, the other people on this other car, they're aliens. So <laughs> it's it's awesome. My my wife and I played like went on that ride like three or four times when we were there. Oh, so so excited. Uh, actually, speaking of Splatoon, though, we did get a little bit of Splatoon news this week as well. Oh, yeah. So uh, we are having Splatober or Splatoween or Splat something Halloween theme. Whatever they're calling it. Exactly. So Splatoon 2's lifespan is apparently still not over yet, despite multiple reports coming out saying that it had been. Uh, not only is there a, like an entire themed event for Halloween this month, but they are even adding new content into the game for Halloween. They are adding gear uh, that you can get by, if you know the Nintendo Switch newsfeed, when you open up the console, then there will be a news story in there for Splatoon, for Splatoween. And if you go into and launch the game from this news story, then you will get four new pieces of Halloween-themed gear for your character. And they do actually look really, really cool. Of course, all Halloween-themed. What do we have here, Seth? Yeah, we've got a Kyonshi hat. We've got some little devil horns, a hockey mask, and an anglerfish mask, which you can uh, get via a Switch News article later on this month. That Splatoween Splatfest, what it's going to be, it's going to be Team Trick versus uh, Team Treat. Uh, that's <laughs> happening Halloween weekend from the 30th at 3 p.m. Pacific through the 1st of November at 2 p.m. Pacific. So... What team are you guys going to be on? Let us know at All End Podcast on Facebook and at All End Podcast on Twitter. Let us know what team you're going to be playing for. Maybe we'll see you online. You know what I've got to say? Uh, out of all this content, the thing that I love most is the anglerfish hoodie. Just it, because man. within the realm of Splatoon, you have the Octolings, you have the Inklings, you have all these sea life themed evolutions of of life forms and for the halloween stuff you have these horror elements you've got the devil horns you've got the hockey mask but i just love the fact that one of their horror pieces of clothing is an anglerfish costume because within the context of splatoon's world that just makes perfect sense it, it does it makes perfect sense that they would be afraid of an anglerfish it's great i love it so much it just makes so much sense and i saw that i was like oh like you can you can derive so much lore just from that one thing. Uh, well done, Nintendo. I appreciate that. Well done. What what are you thinking, Team Trick or Team Treat? Oh, I'm I, I'm probably going to be with like ninety percent of people over on Team Trick. Yeah, I, I feel I feel myself going in that direction too. I always find myself going for like the oddball direction, like just not even intentionally. I, it just seems like that I end up on the losing team, but is what it is, or in terms of popularity anyway. I've been on winning teams too, but <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. It's been a minute since I've played Splatoon 2, but this is probably going to get me back in, at least for a weekend, you know, and I, I definitely want to jump in when they do the uh, power-up uh, Super Mario-themed Splatfest in January. Yeah, and if you've never played Splatoon before, it is a wildly fun 3D online multiplayer shooter. Incredibly unique incredibly unique with the paint mechanics if you've never checked it out uh look it up on the nintendo eShop. watch some trailers again it's uh it's it's got really really good story mode but just like with most shooters the online multiplayer is where most people you know spend a lot of their time and it is just an absolute blast i'm not really big personally on online multiplayer shooters every time i've played splatoon online i've had an absolute absolute blast 
Well, hey, speaking of online Nintendo Switch shooters, from October 13th through October 20th, Nintendo Switch Online members can play the full version of Overwatch entirely for free. So if you've never played Overwatch and you got a Switch, it's a really good port of that game. It is you know, one of the most popular PvP shooters out there. There's a Halloween event going on in that game as well. So I think that's a really great opportunity for folks to try Overwatch out on Switch. Yeah, if you've never pulled the trigger on Blizzard's now iconic hero shooter, I mean, yeah, play the game for an entire week for free. That's a pretty good deal. So uh, I've, I've played it a couple times, haven't spent too much time with it. Obviously, there's so much other stuff out there to play and do. But you know what? I might get back on and uh, and dust off my Genji a little bit. Who knows? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so piggybacking off of that, though. You know, speaking of multiplayer and stuff, we did get a few more details on Mario Kart Live Home Circuit ahead of its release next week, which is crazy. Yeah, I actually can't believe it snuck up on us like that, but it is coming out next week on the 16th. And we got a few new details that I just wanted to really quickly touch on from Nintendo, uh, who have released a video on their YouTube channel detailing some new stuff. Uh, if you want to check that out to sort of make your purchasing decision. Talking about the custom races, stuff that we already knew, but... The customization that they've added to this game, I think, is really impressive. That You have the ability to add in-game hazards, to customize the items, uh, to customize the the way that the Grand Prix is going to go about. Um, there's going to be time trials and mirror mode. They're packing quite a bit into this game. You know, <laughs> I really want to play it. I really do. What's ultimately going to hurt me is the fact that my apartment, where I live... Uh, is not really conducive to <laughs> creating big, elaborate tracks. And it's not really conducive terrain to RC go-karts. So, uh, I mean, I really want to play it. I might not be able to play it where I live, but I still really want to find a place to play it just because, you know, everything I've seen with the game, I just cannot wait to see what people do with Mario Kart Live and the different creative things they're going to do. Just, I, I imagine the creativity that people put toward things like Mario Maker, but doing it IRL. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked that they showed was the customization. You know, because obviously, at least at launch, uh, everybody's going to either have a Mario Kart or a Luigi Kart. So one of the things they've done to give players a lot more customization options is like outfits and cart options that you're actually mm -hmm. going to see like on the Switch's screen. And there's a ton that we've seen. Like Mario in a full like Knight's getup. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> so I I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, they have detailed the Grand Prix, which is going to have you facing off against the Koopalings. Uh, eight Grand Prix Cups. Each one has 24 different races. And uh, yeah, it seems like there's going to be quite a bit of content in this game. It, it seems like it's more in-depth than people may have been expecting for what the game is. So, I, I mean, I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know that I'm going to pick it up at launch just because there's so much else going on. And like you, I don't know how it's going to work in my space. But Nintendo did also come out and say that they do anticipate that the carts will work just fine on most carpets. So, I mean, if you've got one of those retro 60s shag rugs, it's probably going to get hung up. <laughs> yeah. But on most carpets, they anticipate that the carts are going to run on them just fine. So it's really just going to depend on your space. Uh, an area of roughly 12 by 10 feet is recommended for the best gameplay experience by Nintendo. So 
Yeah, a lot of ankles going to be broken come Christmas morning. Yeah, I, I fully think my cat is going to become a stage hazard. Uh, so <laughs> You're going to give your cat a heart attack. <laughs> so we'll see. Now, something in my realm, because those of you who know me know that I'm a huge fighting game guy, I was super excited because we got more news regarding Mortal Kombat 11 just a couple days ago. And a lot of people thought that, you know, the big news, the big announcements for Mortal Kombat 11 were kind of coming to a close, but it turns out they've still got one or two big surprises left for us. And one of them came on Thursday in the form of Combat Pack 2. Three new characters were announced. A couple of them had already been leaked, but we got officially announced Rain, Melina, and new guest character John Rambo are now going to be coming to Mortal Kombat 11 next month in what they are dubbing Mortal Kombat Ultimate. So, yay. Yay. Yeah. Um, could not be happier. Melina, of course, was a major, major character that a lot of people have been wanting uh, Nether Realm to bring back ever since the game released. Her, Reptile, a few others, they're just legacy characters people kind of expect to see in the games. Right. And there were a lot of frustrated people when they did not make the roster at the game's launch and hadn't been announced until now. In Melina's case, at least, Reptile is still MIA. But yeah, I'm I'm super happy. Rain, also, a lot of people expected Rain to be in Mortal Kombat 11 as well because Prince did pass in between Mortal Kombat X and the release of Mortal Kombat 11. So, and for those who don't know, the character Rain was directly influenced, was directly based off of Prince. Right. So, uh, the purple one now finally making his debut in Mortal Kombat 11. And of course, you have yet another iconic movie character coming in, blasting his way through the cast. John Rambo. Yeah, I mean, it's like, are there any, like, remaining 80s movies that, that we can still <laughs> stand to have in Mortal Kombat? Well, that partnership with WB is definitely paying dividends right now. So between yeah, the is. Terminator, between RoboCop, between everything that they've, all the different guest characters they've put into the franchise, and not just Mortal Kombat, the Injustice franchise as well, since the Mortal Kombat reboot back in 2011, it's just insane. It's just absolutely insane. Jason, Freddy Krueger, Leatherface, Robocop, Terminator, uh, Alien, Predator. And that's just in the Mortal Kombat side. So, I mean, I mean, keep them coming. I have seen a little bit of discourse in terms of people saying, you know, they think that the, the guest characters are cheapening the game experience and that Mortal Kombat is cheapening the characters by having them appear. But, I mean... Believe what you believe, I guess, especially in the case of John Rambo, I believe that, I mean, yes, the initial movie First Blood is a very harrowing movie about PTSD and Vietnam veterans and the way they were treated when they came back to America. But all the subsequent media about Rambo has just all been senseless violence, basically. I mean, all the different Rambo movies, we even had a Rambo cartoon. We also had a RoboCop cartoon. So, I mean, at this point, they're they're basically tailor-made for something like Mortal Kombat. And, I mean, I can still appreciate the original movies for what they were, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to have a blast online, you know, running down folks with John Rambo, having Rambo versus Terminator. Oh, I wish he was a Mortal Kombat X. I want to do Rambo versus a uh, Rambo versus Predator. That'd be cool. Well, I mean, the, the WB partnership and the WB characters popping up in the game is all null and void to me until we get Michael Jordan from Space Jam. Oh, God. <laughs> 
But I mean, at this point, especially with the inclusion of Rambo, I mean, we could definitely have the conversation before this, but I think with this inclusion, it just really has to be said, at what point does NetherRealm just straight up make like a movie all-stars fighting game? Yeah. Yeah, I could totally see that. Like a like a WB All-Stars fighter. That'd be actually really cool. I was just yeah. about to make an off-the-wall prediction, Pennywise. I mean, it could happen. And <laughs> considering that Joker is also in Mortal Kombat, no. I, I think it would be interesting. You could have clown versus clown. Yeah, totally. I mean, well, you know, maybe now that they're uh, you know, got Injustice 3 presumably being their next project if they follow the traditional Netherrealm path. You know, maybe yeah. uh, finish up that trilogy and then, you know, maybe uh, in the future, WB All-Stars. That'd be pretty sweet. And even going along with all those guest characters, there's still a very good chance we're going to get at least one more. Because one thing that a lot of people seem to have forgotten was last year during the Shang Tsung reveal trailer when they teased the rest of Combat Pack 1. At the end, there was a very distinctive chainsaw sound. Mmm. Now they showed off, or they teased the Terminator with the, you know, very famous Terminator dun-dun-dun-dun-dun soundbite, but right next to that was a very clear, very audible, very obvious chainsaw sound effect, and the same leaker that was right about basically all the leaked characters had also leaked that Ash Williams from the Evil Dead franchise was also going to be a playable character. And given that they were right about every other character that's been released, I don't think we're done with DLC characters yet for Mortal Kombat 11, even with this Combat Pack 2 announcement. So, and especially if they include Ash, then, I mean, you might as well just, you know, call it a day. You might as well just stick a fork in it because <laughs> NetherRealm is going to make a movie monster fighting game at some point like that's gonna happen if they throw in ash in there like that's a done deal at that point yeah i mean hey halloween shadow drop maybe <laughs> oh that'd be so great that'd be so cool well at least their you know collaboration with wb and their partnership will have them avoiding any legal troubles if they do uh go that route but speaking of legal trouble segue segue <laughs> <laughs> nice i like that we did have a fairly insane lawsuit crop up regarding Joy-Con Drift. We're not going to talk about it a whole bunch here in the news segment because uh, in our main discussion segment this week, we're going to be talking about this and a lot more. So definitely stay tuned uh, for that. But we did just want to mention that because we would be remiss not to mention something so grandiose. I mean, this lawsuit uh, is to the tune of $5 million in damages. So this is something we're going to go much more in depth on later in the show. Yeah, it's kind of insane, but it definitely uh, it definitely turns a few heads when a 10-year-old shows up in a plaintiff against Nintendo to the tune of $5 million in damages over Joy-Con drift. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that much more later, so definitely stay tuned. But before we move on, you know, we got a couple of other little kind of minor news bits to touch on before we move on. Uh, to our next segment, but I just want to real quick make a plea to <laughs> the powers that be at EA <laughs> because EA Sports, NHL, you know, you guys know I'm a big hockey fan. They have announced that as a pre-order bonus for NHL 21, they're releasing NHL 94 Rewind on PS4 and Xbox. And 
man, I, I need this to come to Switch. I, I physically need this. It looks really cool. <laughs> so cool. I mean, this was leaked a while ago. And, and I, you know, I, I just, I'm kind of like stunned that they haven't already announced it for Switch. Because that's just money on the table at this point. But this is something that I just want to add energy to. I'm just like, guy, like guys, just like make this happen. I know I'll buy it. Uh, another shout out to Nintendo Dads. Tim over there is, is is really you know tooting the horn for this and and wanting this to come out on Switch. Uh, we we need it. I don't care if we need to put together a petition or something. Uh, NHL '94 Rewind. EA, please bring this to Switch. Like there's a massive demographic that's being completely ignored, and that is the demographic of arcade style sports fans. Yes. Uh, yes. All the sports, like the vast majority of the sports games that come onto the market are all simulators like NBA 2K, Madden, NHL, Rory McIlroy Golf, and you know all of these different sports games are all simulators. But there is a massive, massive fan base out there for more arcade-style sports games. Games like NBA Jam, games like NFL Blitz. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Again, we love Nintendo. But we would very much like to see Nintendo not be the only purveyors of arcade sports titles. And I would be very interested in seeing an arcade hockey game pop up. So, you know, I think this just speaks. I think I hope they're paying attention when they release this game and seeing how popular this is going to be. And maybe they'll say, hey, maybe we should release more sports games like this. Maybe we should do more arcade style games like this. Because that is a huge untapped market, especially for people who don't own Nintendo consoles. Yeah, I mean, we had Mike Herman from RetroSoft Studios on the show. Uh, talk to him about Retro Retromania, uh, which is coming out hopefully soon. Yeah, cannot wait for that. And uh, yeah, r- real quick, you know, as a hockey fan, I got to pour one out for my boy, Corey Crawford. Uh, one of the best goalies to ever play the sport, <laughs> not re-signing with the Chicago Blackhawks. And, and I'm so sad about that. So yeah, massive blow to Chicago. It, it it broke my heart. Uh, I'm going to miss the crow, but you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> it, it seems like the team's going to rebuild in the next season, and it's probably time for that. But anyway, this is not all in a hockey podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is all in a Nintendo podcast. Uh, and speaking of EA, they did also announce, and this is something that was leaked some time ago, but is now official, that Need for Speed Hot Pursuit Remastered coming to Switch on November 13th. That is going to be... Seems like a really good port, full 1080p 60, um, and and it looks like it's going to be a really solid port, very much in the vein of Burnout Paradise. Uh, it looks like EA is doing some really good work with their racers on Switch. So excited about that! I mean, I've been burning for another game like Burnout because the Burnout games are just so so fun. We were just talking about arcade sports games, and you know. I just want to see more stuff like this. Obviously, Need for Speed is such an expansive franchise now. You've got not just the Hot Pursuit games, but you've also got the incredibly popular Underground franchise, especially Need for Speed Underground 2. So, you know, again, we were just talking about arcade sports games, so bring more of them over. Thank you, EA, for doing this at least. You know, we might not say thank you, EA, often, but, (laughs) but yeah, thanks for bringing Need for Speed Hot Pursuit over to the Switch. Love to see more of it. But if you wish to truly curry my favor, you'll bring over NHL. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Choose wisely, EA. Yes. But again, kind of, you know, in a roundabout way, also sticking with the arcade motif, we have one last thing to talk about in regards to SNK. Actually, just a very brief uh, PSA for those of you who have Spotify 
SNK recently uploaded over 50 of their video game albums to Spotify. So if you're a fan of listening to video game music, I know I am. I downloaded Spotify just to listen to video game tracks, specifically uh, Wander Song back in our first episode. But... You know, if you're a fan, uh, if you've got the app and you're a fan of listening to video game music, again, SNK just uploaded 50 other video game albums to the streaming service. So go on there and check them out. Yeah, I mean, really cool. Everything from Metal Slug to King of Fighters to World Heroes. I mean, all, all these classic video game soundtracks, really cool stuff. More folks need to do this. Yeah, and if you're a fan of SNK, also pick up the SNK 40th Anniversary Collection. Really, really fun, really good collection. And once again, that demo for Pikmin is out now. Go ahead and download it from the Nintendo eShop if you are even remotely interested in the game. It'll be out on October 30th, just in time for Halloween. So (laughs) you think uh, since it's coming out for Halloween, they might put a little bit of a spooky section in it, Seth? (laughs) I mean, that would certainly be cool. I mean, I, I guess it's a little bit spooky when the Pikmin, like, die. You see their little ghosts? Yeah, well, it certainly wouldn't be the first time that Nintendo decided to put a spookier, scary section into an otherwise non-spooky game. And in the spirit of Halloween, in the spirit of the spooky season, we decided to collect a few such instances for all of our wonderful listeners today and collect them, incidentally enough, into our top five. So continuing our month of Halloween-themed content, this week we are counting down our top five frightening moments in non-horror Nintendo games. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Even games like, you know, Luigi's Mansion, games like Metroid, while they're not necessarily horror games, they are still meant to convey a certain type of feeling. Metroid is incredibly atmospheric, and even though it's not really a horror game, Luigi's Mansion is still meant to be very playfully spooky. That's what those games are meant to do. That's the way those games are meant to feel. So you're you're not going to see Metroid, you're not going to see Luigi's Mansion on this list, because those games are meant to have those types of feelings. We're talking about games that are happy, fun, whimsical even that for whatever reason decide to throw a curveball out of nowhere and just throw an incredibly disturbing or frightening moment right into the middle of the game so do you mean to tell me that we're not going to be talking about resident evil or anything no for (laughs) unexpectedly spooky unexpectedly frightening moments no resident evil is not going to be showing up silent hill is not going to be showing up (laughs) eternal darkness sanity's requiem will not be appearing on the list But uh, I think you guys might be surprised at a few of the games that do have fairly spooky moments hidden somewhere there in the code. And to start us off, I think is a little bit of a surprising entry, as a matter of fact. My number five is Mario Odyssey. Now, Mario's always had the booze, of course. And, you know, they give their little playfully spooky. You've got the boo houses, the ghost houses, and... You know, they, they change it up occasionally. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm not talking about booze or ghosts at all. I'm talking about, because actually booze aren't even in Mario Odyssey, as a matter of fact. But... Isn't that weird? It is. It's just no power-ups, no booze. It barely even feels like a Mario game. And another thing that really makes it feel like not a Mario game is the fact that in the Forest Kingdom, in Mario Odyssey, you can actually find a way into the lower darkened part of the forest and in this lowered part of the forest there is traipsing around a giant tyrannosaurus rex ready to eat mario yeah i mean i think the 
that that sort of trailer with Mario Odyssey, that kind of reveal trailer where we saw the T-Rex and we're kind of like, what is this even? D- kind yeah. of didn't really convey how scary it is when you find your way into the lower area of that planet or that, that Mario Odyssey world. Find your way into that lower area and then being kind of stalked almost through the dark underbelly of this forest underneath the canopy, as it were. It is pretty scary. <laughs> you can capture this photorealistic Tyrannosaurus Rex in the first kingdom in the game, in the first stage of the game. However, when you get to the wooded kingdom and you find your way down to this lowered, darkened forest area, like there is just straight up another T-Rex, one that you cannot capture, just constantly stalking in and out of the trees. And... Even when you have Mario Idol down there, even he is chattering his teeth. Even he is right. shivering. Like that's like it's still kind of unnerving when I go down there. I know you know it's just a video game, obviously, and you know I might just get hit once or twice. But still, having this photorealistic T Rex because I was the generation that grew up with Jurassic Park, and I was just about to say that scared the mess out of me. So I'm yes. This is my number five because I'm still kind of drawing those those childhood fears of Velociraptors and oh, T-Rex a little bit. Yeah, it has total Jurassic Park vibes. <laughs> That's a great comparison. But I, I still remember the first time I fell down there and, you know, I was just kind of looking around, seeing what was going on. And all of a sudden, very much like in Jurassic Park, I kind of felt that thumb. Like, what was that? Thumb. What in the, is that yeah. a thwomp? And then all of a sudden, this T-Rex head just peeks out from behind this tree. And I'm like, nope! <laughs> <laughs> nope! And dude, I ran so fast. I, I actually ran right off uh, the, the platform. <laughs> just trying to get away from the first time. I just ran right up the tree that was there. And it's just, nope. There's a few power moons down there. You got to go get them. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to save that for the end of the game. It's, it is certainly a memorable moment in Mario Odyssey. That's for sure. And Mario Odyssey is, has plenty of very kid-friendly, very fun, even funny moments. New Donk City is fantastic. The Water Kingdom, the Snow Kingdom, they're all very bright, colorful, and whimsical. And then you just get down to the lower part of the Wooded Kingdom and you're being stalked by a photorealistic Tyrannosaurus Rex that's to scale. That's like two stories tall and there's nothing you can do about it except run away. And I couldn't run away faster or I could not run away fast enough from that thing. That thing scared the mess out of me. Well, just like that made you kind of nope out. My number five actually made a character in the game literally say nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> my number five, and by the way, before I get into this, full spoilers for Paper Mario, the Origami King. My number five does come from that game, and I do want to issue a bit of a spoiler warning. I know the game's been out for a little while, but if you've not played it yet and you don't want a small moment uh, in the game to be spoiled for you, uh, then you know go ahead and skip ahead a few minutes. And uh, and yeah, th- just wanted to throw that out there. I know that the the game's been out for a few months, but yeah, spoiler warning in Paper Mario: The Origami King, Chapter Three. Okay, when you finally access the temple where basically you will encounter the final boss of the chapter and you're down there with professor toad and you have your first run in with a toad that has had its face removed by hole punch is just like such a like weirdly disturbing moment. 
And I know that we're coming off of like the, the obviously the really emotional gut wrenching moment that happens in chapter two and stuff. And we'll get into that, but it's still like the game has so much levity between all of that, that you almost let your guard down and you don't expect to see something that is like kind of abject horror, kind of like actually disturbing, even though these are just paper cutouts, seeing like these paper toads with their faces removed is kind of terrifying and, and like kind of makes me uneasy just the the imagery of it and and you encounter plenty of them throughout the course of this level too and have to obviously you know gather them up and stuff like that but like the the positions that they found themselves in the kind of like zombie like you know motif of it it, it makes even professor toad nope out <laughs> yeah those th- those are pretty disturbing when you first come on or when you first come across them in Paper Mario, the Origami King, I think it wouldn't be as bad if it was just like if the face had been whited out. But no, like the, right. the face has been straight up hole punched off of these paper toads. You can see through their head. Olivia peeks her face through yeah. it. <laughs> and I think that's what really sells the disturbing nature of the entire thing. It is. It, I, I do remember seeing that the first time like oh that's unsettling yeah it's just like a strange unsettling tonal shift in that chapter of the game again this game especially by that point has already made a vast tonal shift but there's so much humor and levity just like any other paper mario game that that moment definitely is one of the more memorable ones for me when i was just like whoa that's horrific. And the funny thing is, by the end of that chapter, by the time you get through that whole ordeal, it just, it, again, it does another 180 tonal shift. And the end of that dungeon is just, just this bonkers comedic uh, d- display. I mean, you've got to play the game. They're just, some of the things they do in that game are just absolutely insane in terms of, you know, set pieces, storyline, and, uh, I guess sequences is what I'll call it. I really like that game a lot. You know, maybe, uh, maybe go back and uh, listen to our review. Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> yes, we did do a full comprehensive review of Paper Mario, the Origami King a while back. Do check that out. That's episode seven, actually. So. Oh, well, you with your numbers and your facts. <laughs> anyway, what's your number four, sir? My number four comes from the Pokemon franchise. Now, they do tend to to sneak a little bit of, you know, moderately spooky stuff into the game. Obviously, there's an entire subset of ghost Pokemon. And in most of the generations, you have, you know, a town that's, you know, not quite right. And I think a lot of people might be thinking that I'm going to be talking about Lavender Town in this. And I really wanted to put Lavender Town just because it's such a famous example of unsettling content in a kid's game. And of course, there's that right. entire creepy pasta about whether or not the Lavender Town music actually makes people self harm. But ultimately, for my number four, I've just got to go with the Pokedex entries because mm. there are some incredibly disturbing Pokedex entries throughout the history of Pokemon. Obviously, yes, it's a it's a fantastic kids game. I highly recommend it to to anybody of any age. Great, great game. Obviously, I love it. I've spent Lord knows how many hundreds of hours, possibly even thousands of hours on the franchise across its entire history. Uh, Again, I have it tattooed on my arm. So, you know, I'm fairly well versed with the series. 
But throughout the entire thing, as much kid-friendly content as there is there, they always seem to sneak in these really disturbing Pokedex entries that have these incredibly creepy uh, insinuations and even horrific insinuations in some cases. Uh, a lot of them even deal with like child harm and even child murder. Yeah. Uh, I think Phantump is even is a, a ghost grass Pokemon who evolves into Trevenant. Basically, it's like a ghost tree. But one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. I love Phantump and, and Trevenant. I love them to death. But according to the Pokedex entry, Phantump is like a reincarnated, uh, like past child, yes. human child. They got like lost in the woods, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you have even cute Pokemon, cute ghost Pokemon like Drifloon are said to carry children away out on the wind. And it's just like, wow. Like they, they they never do that in the cartoon. Yeah, no, not quite. <laughs> but it's not just one or two. There's not just outliers. There's quite a few of them. We could very, very easily do a top five list just on the most disturbing Pokedex entries. And maybe we will one day soon. But uh, but yeah, there's just so many that just <laughs> really make you curl your eyebrows. Like, why would you put that in this game? Why would you put that type of imagery? Why would you put that image into our minds? Like, that's so disturbing. Yeah, no, I mean, especially with the ghost type Pokemon, like like you said, like, they they, they really uh, make no mistake about it. I mean, even, especially if you look at stuff like like Mimikyu and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And, like, there's, there, there, there's a ton. I mean, we could go on and on. You know, maybe we will someday, like you said. But, but yes, I definitely respect that entry. <laughs> no pun intended. For my number four, speaking of, uh, you know, kids putting themselves in harm's way or otherwise being in harm's way, I'm going for Earthbound this time. Yeah, Earthbound is a game that goes places, <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Earthbound is a game that goes to some really weird, strange places. And it definitely, though, does not start out that way. And it definitely presents itself as sort of a look into like colorful sort of Americana and stuff like that doesn't necessarily position itself as like a child's game or anything, but you know, on the surface of it, you would definitely look at it and consider it to be like whimsical or something like that, but it goes to some dark places. And the moment that I'm thinking of in particular is actually the final boss fight against Gigas or Gigas or whatever uh, in earthbound. And that fight is just so horrifying for many reasons. But, you know, first of all, the, the music in there is just like awful and like horror movie chic. <laughs> horror movie chic. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just this kind of like, you know, it's like these like muffled like screams and it just, I don't know, it's it's disturbing. It's like distorted. Uh, I don't like it. The, the imagery of it is like psychedelic and flashing and swirling and you see these like demented like faces in the background and it's it's not good. And in fact, you're completely helpless to fight Gigas. And of course, if you you know have played Earthbound, you know that the only thing that you can eventually do is actually just pray, and and that's the way that you have to finish the game. Is these kids faced with certain doom, having to literally pray and summon all the love of the people you know that that they've helped, um, in order to literally take down evil incarnate. It's pretty heavy stuff. And it's uh, it's definitely the kind of thing that even though the game has done some disturbing things before then, 
that's the kind of like world ending apocalyptic thing that like you don't really expect to see in a game like this. Yeah, you don't really see Gigas in the fight. There's just this undulating, disturbing looking background. There, there, there yeah. is no actual character model for Gigas. It's just this, again, like you said, this psychedelic, undulating, ever evolving. You know, the, even the imagery of the background is hard to make out, but there are, going along with how disturbing the boss fight is, there are a lot of people out there who believe that it shows the image of an unborn fetus patterned over and over again. And it's just like, yeah, it's just like swirling in and out and it's playing this like distorted, like just disturbing. I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's like something you would see in a horror movie, like on a TV screen. Yeah. So yeah, that I, I had to shout that out. Yeah. Still a great game. I'd definitely check it out if you had the opportunity. Uh, for my number three, we are actually going to a game that we did an indie showcase on recently. I am going with A Hat in Time. Now, for those of you who listened to our indie showcase for our 35th anniversary Mario extravaganza, you will know that I did briefly mention there was a part in the game that was deeply disturbing and even terrifying. And that is the level, the mission, Queen Vanessa's Manor. Yes, good call. That is, yeah, <laughs> that level is something else. Yeah, so the vast majority of the game is very fun, very whimsical. Uh, <laughs> I mean, most of the time it's even comedic, very bright, very colorful. However, there is a an entire world called the Subcon Forest. And mm -hmm. there are a few characters in there that are kind of almost Psychonauts-esque in their portrayal and in, you know, kind of the way they make, uh, they're meant to make you feel. But there is one specific mention in the Subcon Forest. You have to go into this mansion that is locked behind all this ice that is locked at the bottom of the forest. And, you know, down at the bottom of the forest is all this ice. Inside all of this ice is this mansion. And inside this mansion is this wailing spirit of an unstoppable character. And, like, not only is the... The, the wailing and the noise this character makes as she's going after you, as you're trying to make your way through her mansion. Not only is that disturbing, however, when she's close to you, the entire screen just starts distorting, visually distorting. There's this massive, it's almost as if the screen itself is having a heart attack. Yeah, I mean, talk about more, you know, kids in dangerous situations. She'll freeze you. Yeah. The hat kid, obviously, the entire point of a hat in time is is it, it basically just some kids like a five year old woke up and wrote down everything that happened in their dream and they made a video game out of it. But the nightmare portion of that dream is definitely this. <laughs> like, I feel bad for that kid who had the nightmare because. Uh, again, you're, you're not really expecting it. You know, the subcon forest is, you know, kind of spooky, kind of not necessarily Halloween themed, but very, you know, Luigi's Mansion in, in terms of its portrayal, in terms of lighthearted, spooky content, even though the, the main character in the subcon forest does, you know, kind of disturbingly talk about owning your soul. It is still somehow yeah. played off in a relatively lighthearted way. But there is nothing lighthearted at all about Vanessa. She's just straight up terrifying. Straight up terrifying. She's got this kind of like formless, smoky, kind of vaguely human shape with her like red eyes. And yeah, she's she's not a pleasant customer. 
yeah, just just does not belong in the game whatsoever. It just honestly feels like there's a horror game out there missing its villain. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, yeah. So if you ever play through the Subcon Forest, you ever play through A Hat in Time, which you should because it's a great game, just, you know, maybe play through the Subcon Forest in Vanessa's Manor with the light on. That's fair. So for my number three, you know, I I, I fought with this. But eventually I had to go ahead and I, you know, you know, I had to do it to him. I had to put a Banjo-Kazooie thing on my list. And well, it does belong. I actually, most of the time we don't know what each other's list is, but I do know what his number three is. And it, it does belong. For those who are familiar with Banjo-Kazooie, I, I, I won't, you know, it, it's a classic game. It's one of my favorite games of all time. I'm not going to describe the entire game to you or anything. We did a retrospective of this game, actually. It was our first retrospective, as a matter of fact. Um. But the sort of premise of the game and the and the sort of uh, crux of the villain Gruntilda's plot is that she wants to steal Banjo's sister Tootie's beauty from her. And when you get a game over screen in Banjo, it unlike most games where it's just game over and you restart from the last checkpoint, this game actually shows you what happens when Grunty wins. It actually shows Gruntilda going through with her plan and transferring Tootie's beauty to her. And it's this disturbing scene where Tootie is trapped inside of this like pod and she's banging on the door, like begging for Banjo to help her. And of course you can't, you're already in the game over screen. And Grunty steals her beauty and she comes out this horrific, misshapen, gorilla-like character. And, you know, it just, Banjo-Kazooie has a couple of, like, dark little moments in it, but nothing like this. And you you could, you know, I know a lot of people would probably think that I was going to talk about the shark or or whatever. Um, But this one, the game over screen, the first time I saw that, it left me really, like, disturbed. It's got a disturbing aura to it. And I, I, I can't really think of too many games that actually show you what happens, like what the stakes are in the game over screen, what literally happens if you lose. And and it just adds a weight to it all that I don't think anybody expects when they start the game. Yeah, it is kind of odd for a game that's rated for children to to go that far. It's like borderline some like body dysmorphic. It's it's like those disturbing scenes in Disney movies, like when like in Pinocchio and like the kid turns into a donkey. It's like that kind of thing. <laughs> it's like yeah. kind of sad and disturbing. And again, she's like crying for your help and stuff. It it actually like bothered me when I was younger playing the game. <laughs> but you said I will never get another game over ever again. I'm coming for you, Tootie. Exactly. Which, to be fair, is the point of it. But yeah, n- you know, nonetheless disturbing and and kind of horrific. And it's a it's a far cry from when you start the game and you're just you know fighting carrots with eyes. Yeah. Yeah, the far, far reach from from fighting anthropomorphic fruit and vegetables. <laughs> yes. Well, for my number two, we are going with Animal Crossing New Horizons. And mm. a lot of people might be wondering what moment I could be talking about because the the game, you know, we've talked about the Halloween content and all the spooky stuff that they've added uh, for the month of October, and it has nothing to do with that. Despite the fact that this is a, a life sim, a, a really kid-friendly, very simple, very laid-back 
life simulator where you can fish and catch bugs. And it's all very pleasant. It's about as laid back a gaming experience as you can really have. However, if you happen to be running around in the early evening, there is a chance that you could just run up on a scorpion or a tarantula and those giant bugs will then <laughs> turn, jump at you, and then chase you down until they either get you or you are somehow able to get through your inventory, get your bug net out, turn around, and then catch them. They will not stop chasing you. Yeah, and I mean, of course, when you become more familiar with it, you begin to learn like, oh, hey, if I approach it slowly and I'm methodical about it, I can I can safely capture one and you, you get pretty good at it. But, uh, but no, that, that first time is like, it is horrifying. And the thing is, like, it's not even just the first time, because with every other entry on my list, you know when those moments are going to happen. You know where to find those moments, and you know what to expect once you've already experienced it. However, in Animal Crossing New Horizons, you could play for days. You could play for nights on end and not run into one. You get complacent, you start running around, you start doing your chores, you completely forget about it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, several days down the road, you're just running, you're trying to collect, you're trying to mine for resources, you're trying to go fishing, and you just happen to run a little bit too far. You run right up on that big tarantula, it turns around, it sees you, and then you just start have just like my my heartbeat doubles instantaneously every time that happens because it can happen anywhere on your island you just be running around collecting resources doing whatever you are you just don't think about it and then you just run up on one of them and it's like oh i got you now i'm coming for you now and in this wonderful life sim game that's supposed to be incredibly laid back and not stressful at all you have these massive tarantulas and scorpions that will chase you down until they kill you. I still, dude, like even now, I'll, I'll be running around on my island at night or whatever. And like you say, that lays the seeds of that false sense of security, right? I haven't seen one in a while. It's no big deal. And then, yeah, next thing you know, boom, you see that scorpion or that tarantula. And, and you know, you're, you're just going to get knocked out and you're going to, you know... You're going to wake up next to Wilbur. But the, the reason it's so high up on my list is because of the incredibly large amount of dissonance there is between those moments, you know, where you're being chased to the ends of the earth by a giant scorpion or a giant spider versus the entire rest of the game. Because True. the entire rest of the game is an incredibly relaxing experience. It's exactly what I would recommend to people who want a catharsis, who want to just chill and zen out at the end of a long day. You just go into your Animal Crossing village. You say hi to your villagers. You do a few chores. You run around. You might catch some shooting stars. You might go fishing. You might go you know, swimming in the ocean. It's all very pleasant. It's all very enjoyable. There's no stakes. It's all very laid back. And then all of a sudden, you run up on this big spider, and it starts chasing you around your island, and you're just trying not to get killed by this thing. And all of a sudden, your heart rate goes from 80 to 580. Yeah. And that's the reason, is not only because of the incredibly, how incredibly offset the feeling is. For 99% of the game versus the moments where you're being chased by those things and the fact that you never see it coming. It's kind of the ultimate jump scare in that way. Yeah. <laughs> so those have gotten me several times. 
like uh, like I said, every other instance on my list, I know where those experiences are going to happen. But this one still gets me because it could happen anytime, anywhere on my island. I'll just be running around playing the game. And all of a sudden, bam, I ran too far. There's a scorpion. Oh, it wants to kill me. I should be afraid now. Goodbye, world. <laughs> well, for my number two, I think that a lot of players and a lot of people who have been playing video games for a while, especially maybe now for some folks who are playing Mario 3D All-Stars, can probably relate to the Mad Piano from Super Mario 64. Ah, iconic. Iconic moment in the game, of course. Uh, extremely terrifying the first time, especially if you don't know that it's going to happen when I'm playing the game as a yeah. kid. And this piano, if you get too close to it, just starts chasing you and violently chomping down the top of it, which is now, which is now bearing teeth. Horrifying noise. Terrifying. Does massive damage if it hits you. No way to take it down. <laughs> it's like, what? And there's a red coin behind him. So, like, you got to get it. But then the the brilliant thing about it is even if you know it's coming, that makes it all the more terrifying because now you're having to tiptoe behind, you know, it, it's like you're having to tiptoe behind Cerberus or something, you know, like this thing that you feel like could just go rabid at any moment. Terrifying, man. Now, some some of our younger listeners may look at a 64-bit piano uh, and, you know, wonder why in the world it scared people so much back in the day. But it really did. Especially the first time. Obviously, you know, once you know what you're dealing with, not so much. But that first time that it happens to you when you have no clue that it's coming, because why would you? You're playing a Super Mario right. game. You're enjoying yourself. Yeah, you may be in the Boom Mansion. Cool, whatever. But it's nothing more than a themed level. That's it. There's a couple, you know, booze running around, but nothing too bad. Oh, that's interesting. They have a little piano in here just to fill out the room. You walk up on it, and all of a sudden, it just starts you know, just jangling around the room. Like you said, the top comes off and it's got all of these giant teeth and it's just coming for you. And that was one of the first real, true, amazing video game jump scares. And it's hilarious that it happened within a Nintendo game. For it to happen in Super Mario 64 is hilarious. And of course that, you know, it's in Big Boo's Haunt or whatever, but that level isn't really scary on the face of it. I mean... The music that plays there is pretty scary. It's almost like this chanty, like throat singing almost. <laughs> but so, I mean, that's that's kind of scary, but it doesn't really have you unsettled as much as it is just like in the backdrop of it all, in the aesthetic of it all. But yeah, that that jump scare with the piano, just completely unexpected as a kid playing that game, even as an adult encountering it. The animation is just... You know, props to the animators that worked on this game because the way they animated that thing, it's like savage, man. It's like a rabid dog, the way it chases you down and that lid is just chomping and just the sound effect is like perfect. It's, it is, it is the perfect <laughs> jump scare. Yeah. The sound effect is basically like somebody just hammering down their fists on the piano on the keys. keys. Yeah. Yes. And again, we've, we've both kind of talked about how the rest of, the level, despite it being booze haunt, you know, doesn't really set you up for something like that. It, it almost feels welcoming. It's almost as if the level is saying is like, yes, it's supposed to be a spooky level, but we're not that bad. Come on in, play our game, you know, enjoy us. And then you're like, oh, okay, cool. And then you run up on that piano and it's like, oh Lord, oh, no, 
Yeah. By the way, piano wants to eat you. You can just feel the game laughing at us. All these years later, still resonates. That's a react video I want to see. I want to see people reacting to that piano for the first time. If you guys are playing Mario 3D All-Stars and you're experiencing Mario 64 for the first time, please shout out, reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Podcast and let us know how you reacted to the mad piano. I gotta know. <laughs> uh, see, but watch just because it's Nintendo 64, like a lot of these, you know, super elite kids are gonna be like oh it didn't scare me ah uh, you're a liar <laughs> on a completely unrelated <laughs> note i gotta go change my pants real quick i'll be yeah. back on the stream in a few minutes guys exactly but yes the wonderful the iconic the piano from super mario 64 now for my number one i'm actually going pretty obscure okay in the wii's game library there is a diving sim called endless ocean uh -huh, i love that game i do too i really really liked it i actually wound up getting it for my mother for her birthday. She was looking for something. We had gotten the Nintendo Wii. My my father had gotten one. He fell in love with Dr. Mario. I was going to say Dr. Mario, right? Yeah, my father fell in love with Dr. Mario. And, it, you know, my mom reached out to me. She was, you know, they had it. So she was trying to find something to do with it. And I decided to, you know, because my mom has not really been in, into too many video games. She, ironically enough, really got into Intelligent Cube on the PlayStation, on the PS1. Oh, nice. She just absolutely got addicted to that for a little while. So I thought maybe a little something offbeat, but I wind up deciding to get her this Endless Ocean diving sim on the Wii, trying to get her to use it since we had or since they had it. And But I wound up actually playing it a lot more than she did. She only played it a couple times, but I really, really enjoyed it. It's this really wonderful little diving sim that there's this, I mean, it's not super big. The The map isn't super big, but there's still quite a bit to do. There's uh, this sunken uh, ship you can discover and all kinds of different species of sea life and plant life down in the ocean. And you can create your own aquarium. And there's actually this small little narrative thing going on. There's artifacts and little doohickeys and knickknacks you can discover. There's there's a lot to do. And very much like Animal Crossing, it's very it's very laid back for most of the time. It's a very slow moving game for most of it. And then you eventually unlock an area in the game that is called the Abyss. And this is just pure nightmare fuel. <laughs> Like the entire rest of the game is just you slowly diving and swimming along these coral reefs and these beautiful, you know, shiny banks and, you know, very leisurely swimming around and picking up stuff and interacting with the, uh, the sea life and cataloging and stuff like that. And then you get to the abyss and it is just black. You're down there. There's no sun. Yeah. Like zero. The only light is coming from your little, you know, apparatus that you have your little diving apparatus you have attached to you that's the only light at all and it's this huge just downward cave uh and you know they put it in there because you know because you can catalog all different types of marine life and they wanted to have some deep sea marine life in there for you to catalog as well but yeah, they put it, uh, they obviously had to put those life forms into their own environment. And there we have the abyss. And when you go down there, like not only is it already unsettling because not only are you the only person down there, not only is the, the only light around coming from your apparatus, but there's just something about 
being in a diving situation, being underwater, you are so much more vulnerable in those types of situations. Now, if you're anywhere on land, anywhere in a building, anywhere above the water, you at least have options. You can run or you can climb or you can somehow fight back in most cases. But if you're underwater, like there's nothing you can do. Everything underwater is so much more adept at everything than human beings are underwater. If anything wanted to do something to you, there'd be nothing you can do about it. And I think it's that vulnerability that really gets me because as much as I really enjoyed the game, I had to mentally prepare myself whenever I went down there. And this is a game where you can't even take damage. You can't be attacked. You're not going to be attacked by anything. You can't take damage. And still, it was just absolutely frightening because... There'd, there'd be this ambient sound, not a lot going on. I would just be, have this little tunnel, this little cone of light right in front of me. I'd just be going down and down and down. And I just look to the left and one foot in front of my face would be this grotesque goblin shark. And I would just immediately just swim back up to the top like, nope, nope, nope. We're not, we're not doing this today. Nope. The ocean's terrifying, man. I'm absolutely, I, I like, I am so terrified of the ocean and like deep sea creatures. It's the worst. And it's just like, it's everything is just the stuff of nightmares. It's pitch black. The stuff down there is scary. Like you said, you're helpless. The pressure down there is insane. There, there's not much you can do against anything else that's down there. And yeah, I, horrifying the whole concept of it in a very real way is horrifying yeah and i think that's one of the big things for me is because it's incredibly relatable everything else on my list is you know very video gamey i mean we're talking about possessed pianos and we're talking about haunted mansions inside of games that were essentially based off of a children's dream and just all these fantastical elements but the things in this game are real these are all real marine life forms that live in these real nightmare fuel places. And again, despite the fact that I I knew none of them were going to attack me, that wasn't the point of the game. It's, it was legitimately terrifying being down there because I, I guess I just put myself into the headspace of doing that in real life and how I would feel if, if I were doing that in real life. And man, it's just, it was legitimately chilling in a game that otherwise was an absolute joy to play completely stress-free for most of the game. And then you go down to the abyss and it's just nothing but stress. And I, man, I, and still years later, years later, after I've finished playing that game, I would love to see another endless ocean on the switch, by the way, absolutely love to see another one. Uh, Please do make that happen. Nintendo. I thoroughly enjoyed endless ocean, but the abyss, please, Give me an extra light. Hey, like, you know who's never going to do that in real life? This guy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That playing through the abyss and endless ocean has probably put me off of deep sea diving for my entire lifespan. No, I'm good. I'll pass. Well, for my number one, I am going to my childhood, dipping into that well yet again. And it is something that has always stuck with me. And even to this day, playing it now, still horrifying. And that's from Ocarina of Time encountering the Redeads. Yeah. They are, when I think of this, and again, this is something that, just like you said, 
more fantastical. This is not the kind of thing that happens in real life. There's no real life corollary to it. But I just remember playing that game as a kid and going to, you know, in Ocarina of Time, you know, spoilers, there's time involved. <laughs> you go to the future after Ganon is conquered and in this sort of reality where, you know, Hyrule Castle Town is filled with these redead zombies. And it's like sort of implied that they were once the villagers who were once like so happy and like dancing around and stuff in the village are now these horrific death mask zombies that let loose a scream that that sound effect, that redead scream sound effect is still one of the scariest sound effects just ever. It is like ear piercing and just awful. And the thing that you hear in your sleep in your nightmares, it's the worst. A lot of them will stun you when you look at them. You'll be temporarily immobilized where they will then jump on your back and start doing massive damage to you. It's not good. As a matter of fact, the ones you know, further kind of like implying that maybe the ones in the, in castle town are not, uh, were the villagers. Uh, they actually don't paralyze you when the, when you, when they scream at you, uh, which is different from the other redeads in the game. And that makes it kind of all the more sad and just like there's like a sad like there's a psychological tinge to the scariness of it and then there's also just the actual the 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 visuals and the sound of it that's scary and when it's just so juxtaposed to looking at castle town as it normally is and you just look at it side by side to the redeads there when ganon conquers and it's just night and day and it's something that i completely didn't expect the first time I played Ocarina of Time. One of many mind-blowing moments, but encountering those redeads and hearing these screams that still haunt me to this day, uh, something I will not soon forget. Yeah, legitimately, and this is ironic considering it is a Legend of Zelda game, probably one of the best portrayals of zombies in a video game. It, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depends on like how you like your zombies, I guess. But for me... Yeah, I kind of like these zombies that you kind of have to get close to them and you kind of like have to fall into their trap a little bit. But like once you do, they will do massive damage to you. It is not long, man. They will jump on your back and they're dealing like a, like a half a heart or a full heart every like half second or something. It's it's nuts. The the animation is is horrifying. They move slowly. It, it, it's just unsettling. And again, the juxtaposition, that's what always sticks out in my mind. Seeing how lively and happy Castletown is normally and the music and the lively villagers and stuff like that. And then seeing them represented as these shambling, horrific zombies. I, I just, it, it still gets me. But those were our top five. But what about you? What non-horror game sent shivers down your spine? Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. And do please make sure to subscribe to All In on whatever podcasting service you are listening on. We very much appreciate it. But we are going to keep this spooky, scary train rolling by talking about, oh man, this game. Seth, are we ready for this? I, I certainly wasn't, but I'm ready to talk about it. <laughs> All right, guys, let's get into our incredibly terrifying indie showcase this week. It is Detention. So this week we are talking about 
Detention from Red Candle Games, a studio in Taiwan, as a matter of fact. Yes. This is a 2D point and click adventure. And before we go any further, we absolutely have to say, ladies and gentlemen, mature game alert. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. This is not for the kids. No, there are much more kid-friendly Halloween-themed games out there. This is not one of them. And even more so than that, when the game boots up, it actually has a a heart disease warning as one of the first screens. It says, this game is so terrifying, if you have heart disease or congenital heart failure or any heart issues whatsoever, you may want to avert your entire being. And, And I can honestly see why, because this game has like, in terms of the the imagery and like the t- intensity of the things that happen throughout the course of this game, that doesn't shock me whatsoever. I I was real tense playing this game a lot of the time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is a legitimately terrifying game. I mean, really, like actually terrifying. I don't play too many horror games outside of Spooky Season, uh, but this one more so than most games that I've played this century. Uh, I mean, there is just absolutely chilling and disturbing imagery throughout. And the way that the scares manifest themselves in this game are expertly handled. And I mean, you and I both had to kind of stop and get away from the game just to kind of take a few deep breaths, unclench our entire body. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and just kind of like, okay, it's just a game, just a game. I mean, this is the scariest game I've played in years. And, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I play a lot of horror games, but I have been known to enjoy a good horror game or two in my day. I, I like the Resident Evil games. I'm a big Silent Hill fan and stuff. But for me, yeah, this one, even though it's just a pretty simple point and click adventure game, this one, yeah, I, I was like, oh, this is going to be easy. I'll probably play through it in one or two sittings. Yeah, no, this actually took me a few days to get through just to... Because again, I, I I like couldn't take it all in in too long of a session. <laughs> Honestly, like I there was I tried to get through it pretty quickly, the same way you did, but I skipped like an entire day. Just I had to mentally prepare myself. I was like, well, I should really go back and and finish this and play this game. And in the back of my mind, I was like, nope, no, <laughs> no, we're not ready to put ourselves back through that right now. There are sometimes just montages of just disturbing imagery, almost like, you know, you're watching a brainwashing video, almost like you're watching the inside of a serial killer's mind or something. So just flashes of disturbing imagery. Yeah. I mean, so to to sort of set the stage, uh, this game set in the 1960s in Taiwan during the sort of militant, uh, I think it's called the white terror period of 60s Taiwan, the period of martial law, basically. Yeah, you and I both learned quite a bit about Taiwan and this period in general playing this game. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. I mean, I really came away from this being like, wow, I was super ignorant of Taiwan and Taiwanese culture <laughs> because I learned a lot. And that's one of my favorite things about it, actually. But but yes, you play as pretty much the, the main character of the game is this girl, Ray, who is a student and uh, and you're basically spending much of the game navigating her like dilapidated uh, high school and kind of piecing together this really fascinating narrative that 
takes a lot of twists and turns kind of it, it reminded me a lot of in most because by the time you get to the end you're sort of picking up the pieces of the puzzle but um but yeah the moment to moment gameplay is a point and click adventure make make no mistake about that yeah uh, unlike in most, which I didn't really see what they were going for, they very expertly withheld kind of their entire hand until the end of the game. Admittedly, I did kind of see the ending of the game, you know, a little bit beforehand. They they did foreshadow enough of it that I was like, oh, this is kind of what's going on. And then the ending of the game did just verify that. That didn't take away right. from the impact, but it's still... Still very, very well-told story. It may show its hand a little early for some people, but still very, very well-told. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I, I could see that. I mean, I could see, I could definitely see, like, picking up the puzzle pieces and, and kind of figuring out where it's going. It's not even necessarily about the sort of ending. I'm trying to tiptoe around stuff because I don't want to spoil a thing. But it's it's more so about the way it's all executed. Like... The, the way that they actually tell this story, I think, is almost more important than the story itself. Because the story itself certainly goes places, but the way they tell it is super unique. And the things that they do with this genre is pretty unique. Like, there are legitimately... You know, some of these puzzles, by the way, made me bust out a notepad. <laughs> <laughs> but some of these puzzles were are completely unique i'd never played a point and click adventure with puzzles like these for some of them when it comes to point and click adventures a lot of them can get away from the player very very quickly because there's so much going on you collect so many items and there's so many different things you can interact with and you have to figure out what goes where and when it goes there that uh some point and click adventures can become a little much very early for a lot of players but i thought that detention did a really good job of finding a good balance throughout the entire game there were still puzzle solving elements but i never once playing the game felt overwhelmed in terms of the puzzles i felt incredibly overwhelmed by the atmosphere oh yeah <laughs> well the the amazing thing that they do here and and it's probably the single most important design choice that i think they made is that, and you, you mentioned this just a second ago when you were talking about how it's easy in point-and-click adventures to get overwhelmed by the amount of items. It's so nice that this game, when you're done using an item, they just take it out of your inventory. It's it's so simple. That, like, that seems like such a, like, duh thing, but it's so nice to just, like, not have to have a cluttered up inventory. I, I wouldn't say that you ever, at any point in this game, you probably never hold more than, like, four items. You know, like including the notebook that you have around at all times. And that's another thing I do encourage players when you play this game, pick up everything you can. Yeah. Not just because it'll probably be used in a puzzle, but because the notes and the little bits of like Taiwanese culture that are just everywhere in this game is I for me at least 50% of the enjoyment of it. Yeah. Not only do you find uh, notes and pieces of paper that help you piece together everything that's going on, that give you insight into a lot of stuff that's going on, but you also find quite a bit of clues that will help you with not just the puzzles in the game, but, you know, staying alive in the game. Right. I thought that was so cool the way they did that. So again, not spoiling anything, but there are some bits of Taiwanese like folklore and like horror and monsters and stuff in Taiwanese legend that make appearances in this game. And it's really interesting because 
you, there are very specific things that you have to do according to Taiwanese legend to avoid being killed by these things. And if you aren't paying attention and if you don't know what to do, you will be killed. And just like Outlast, just like, you know, many other relatively new horror games, they don't give you a way to combat the enemies in the game. You can only hope to get away from them and survive them. You know, there is no, you know, beating them over the head. There is no shooting them. There is only, dear God, please let me survive this. So and that just really ratchets the tension up to 11. So instead of having an attack button, you actually have a hold your breath button. Yes, yes. And that is very important in these scenarios. And what I love, another thing that I love, another really smart design decision is they didn't overreach. They didn't just jam pack it with enemies. Like really the game has four chapters in the last two chapters. There are no enemies, you know, like they didn't stuff it. Like they could have easily stuffed it with an enemy around every corner, but they just let the game be scary on its own. Like they, it frustrates me to no end. A really good example is Soma, a game that I love, but the entire time I'm playing it, I'm like, dude, why are there like monsters here? It doesn't need it. And this game recognized that and didn't just jam pack it with monsters. And I love it for that. I will say, I actually take a little bit of a different stand than you on that. I think, um, the, the first half of this game is legitimately among the most terrifying experiences I've ever had. Uh, but right. in the back half of the game, just like you mentioned, there aren't actually enemy encounters. There's no way for you to to die. And despite the continued disturbing imagery of the game, despite the continued scary imagery in the game, uh, knowing that you know nothing's going to be coming for you, nothing's going to hurt you, does, in my opinion, does ratchet that that feeling of dread back quite a bit. Now it's still not gone. Obviously, uh, the game is still going to mess with your mind a lot. And by no means am I saying that you can relax after, you know, you get past the halfway point in the game. But the the first half of the game admittedly did stand out to me quite a bit more uh, just because of how much more frightened I was not knowing if there was going to be something around the corner that was going to try to snatch my face off. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I can I can agree with that. I I definitely think the first half is more scary, but I I for me when you get into that when when you start dealing with the subject matter that they do, it it just would have felt really odd to me if they just like and and by the way, here's also monsters. <laughs> so, I I don't know. For for me, I'm glad that they it's rare that horror game developers do that like like kind of have the courage to just let the story speak for itself and maybe the horror element maybe the tension does take a bit of a hit but at least they're sort of willing to not do it where it doesn't make sense like other games that i've played where i'm just like why is there a monster here this this just doesn't make sense and it's needless so i don't know i i appreciated that but i do agree i it, you know the back half isn't as scary as the front half but it's still scary throughout and i loved some of the puzzles yeah. in the back half that's where i think the puzzles really shine yeah the it very much does feel like a game of two halves you know i i feel the game is incredibly well designed throughout 
Uh, however, the design in the second half of the game does stand out more. Yeah. Especially with the way the, the final two chapters in the game are structured. I just think it's incredibly creative what they did. You and I were talking about a specific puzzle earlier, uh, just talking about how how good they were at the design. That, that was when you were talking about having to bust out a notepad. Yeah, no, I literally had to get... I, I have not... I think The Witness was the last game that I played where I actually had to take out like a pen and a paper, <laughs> write things down. And I love that. I love it when I can play an adventure game that really sort of makes me think outside of the box and makes me think about the physical realm and do that that little extra legwork to solve the puzzles. Not that you have to, but it, it you know, it made me feel that way to to sort of solve the puzzle easier and I and I liked that a lot. That man, chapter 3 in this game is like so unique and so yeah. well designed and i was yeah. just i was so impressed that entire time and you were cheating mr screen capture he was taking screen captures of some <laughs> of the clues so that he could reference them when he you know was trying to solve the puzzle hey <laughs> i use the tools that are provided me <laughs> yeah, but going back to the enemies for a second i mean th- there were times when i just i just stopped dead in my track because the the few enemies in the game do have audio uh, do have audio cues and yes, just especially one of them, which is like a mix between a laugh and a cry and a gargle. It's just, it's horrifying, it's incredibly <laughs> unsettling. And even once you know what you have to do and it becomes relatively easy, once you do it a couple times, it's still just so unsettling just to even be around them. It's just, Oh my God, shivers going up my spine just thinking about it. The way uh, they designed it from an audio perspective, man. And even from a visual perspective as well, because a lot of the movement that these enemies take is so unnatural. And, oh God, again, if you've played, or um, rather if you've seen uh, other Eastern Asian horror you know, movies or games, you will recognize some of the same elements, like even more so than Ring and Grudge and other movies like that. Yes, man, they just took kind of some of those elements and they applied them here and then just said, how can we make this even more terrifying? Yeah, I mean, the the visual style of this game is super unique in that the way it looks, it isn't this, but the way it looks, it's almost like the game is nearly in black and white the colors are so washed out and you know it, it makes perfect sense why it looks that way and i think the visual style of it's really effective and it almost gives me the vibe of like newspaper clippings kind of yeah yeah like that that was sort of the vibe i got from it and it, and the characters move around and their animations are sort of stilted and they just feel kind of like not in a bad way it, it's it's super effective it, it it adds to this game's unique visual style but yeah that that was sort of the vibe i got it almost felt like newspaper clippings and when you talk about the subject matter of this game and you start to learn a little bit about what how taiwan was in that time I, i'm that that's definitely the corollary that i kept making in my mind uh the way the characters move and the visual style not a lot of people may be familiar with this however the the thing that instantly immediately struck me is it's as if the characters are like 2D string puppets. Yes. Which may, considering some of the subject matter, may have been very intentional. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, it's it's 
certainly not photorealistic, but it's definitely not pixel art either. But that's very much what the characters felt like, because they felt like these 2D string puppets, especially with the the kind of unnatural, inhuman movement that even the playable character uh, has. And, you know, a couple of the other NPCs have. But but even that kind of visual quality gives it this unnatural, inhuman feel that even that, as subtle as it is, also added to the atmosphere. Yeah, totally. And I mean, to, to go back to the sound for a second, it doesn't have like a lot of, you know, horror games. The the sound design is very atmospheric. It's not really about having a score underlying the entire thing. There are pieces of music that are prominent throughout the game that, you know, they used to get effect. In particular, like there, there's an entire chapter that basically revolves around music a little bit. And they've got uh, you know, little bits of like, there's, you know, stuff that involves a piano and stuff like that, but th- there's not really a soundtrack to it as much as there is an ambient sound design overlaid throughout the entire thing. You know, the, the whole conceit, at least in the beginning of the game, is that like a tsunami is like coming and there needs to be an evacuation and stuff. So you kind of like, especially being where I'm from and, and like dealing with hurricanes and stuff all the time. Yeah. I It, it felt very like at home for me to hear the sort of just torrential winds the sort of it, it, like it sounds like it does outside when a hurricane is about to come you know that's what it sounds like in this game and, and i thought they did a really good job with that kind of making it sound like you're on the verge of a typhoon yeah but uh for those out there who you know do tend to stay away from 2d point and click adventures or point and click adventures in general uh i do urge to give this one a try again, it's not nearly as complicated or as involved as many other point and click adventures are. Uh, I, no. I wouldn't necessarily call it a starter point and click adventure because that would imply an experience that's not really stressful. And this is definitely a stressful experience just in a different way. However, in terms of the mechanics, it is extremely accessible. Yes, there will be some times where you're probably scratching your head, but I have to say, the number of, it gave me a number of aha moments. Yes. When I realized, you know, what exactly the game was trying to tell me with the items because I had been somewhere and then I'd pick something up. And so sometimes it's pretty obvious, but sometimes, you know, I kind of had to put two and two together. It wasn't really in your face, but I did have quite a few of those. It made me smart, basically. It made me feel like I was actually a relatively intelligent human being, the way I was able to say, oh, that's right. This is supposed to go here. <laughs> I got what you're doing, game. I see what you're doing. <laughs> yes. And that, and that what you just said right there is so critical to a great pointed click adventure game. It needs those moments. Has to have it. And, and that's exactly what this game delivers on. And I, I, I will say, you know, when you play this game, just it, nothing in there is like super obtuse. I've played some adventure games that have been like immensely obtuse where I'm just like, dude, how was I supposed to know that? Yeah. This game's not like that, which I think is important, but this game will require you to just stop and just think about what you're doing and be thorough, you know, make sure that you're interacting with everything you can Yep. pick up everything you can. And just when you, when you actually stop and think about it, Everything makes sense. And if you need to, like I did, bust out a notepad and contextualize your thoughts a little bit and just write it out in front of you, do that. And and I just think that 
this this game does a really good job of doing things in a way that it does not come off as just unfair or obtuse. Everything sort of makes sense if you stop to just consider it and if you just pay attention to the things in it. So I, I do urge you to take this game slowly mentally, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. And as much as it may terrify you to do so, you will have to explore every nook and cranny of this school. Yes. So go into every room, you know, check out everything, be aware of every prompt the game gives you. Always be aware of the enemies in the first half of the game. Uh, but, you know, always be mindful of where you are, what you're doing, what you're picking up, what you have picked up. But, you know, if you, if you think about this game for a second, it's not overly super complicated as far as point and click adventures go. Uh, I have certainly played far more, again, as you like to say, Seth, obtuse games. <laughs> uh, and I think this yes. one, again, just really strikes a good balance throughout. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a story that is well told, I think. It's got a, a really strong sort of sense of how to tell its story. Uh, it's well designed. It's, it's uh, I mean, I don't really have any huge complaints or drawbacks to be honest i came away from it learning a lot about taiwanese culture i was scared to death (laughs) several times my god um i like the way it looks like the way it sounds i mean i just i i think it's a great great horror game it is honestly not just one of the best horror games on switch for my money but just one of the strongest horror game experiences i've had Probably ever. I would absolutely love to play a detention too. Now the game itself is about twelve, thirteen dollars on the eShop. And what do you say, about five, maybe six hours to complete? Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably say somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six hours. Probably just I mean, honestly, like any point and click adventure, it's gonna depend on how long it takes you to solve its puzzles. Um, but, but yeah, I, I would say between four and six hours is probably pretty strong. Now I would have played the game longer, but I certainly felt like I got enough out of the game. I thought the story, I thought the game itself was as long as it needed to be. Uh, it certainly didn't feel as short as many of the other indie games that we've played. There's a lot of indie games that leave us feeling like we just needed more out of it. And while I would have certainly liked to have seen more from detention as much as it terrified me, I do feel like it was a full experience. Totally. Yeah. So I did not come away from it feeling unsatisfied or, or anything like that. Another thing I will say, I actually didn't realize this until you told me the game has <laughs> multiple endings. It does. <laughs> it does. There are actually two endings to the game, both of which I recommend checking out. Now, Uh, The ending that you get is completely determinant on things that you do in the final chapter and individual chapters can be replayed. So it's not like you would have to completely replay through the game to see the alternate ending, which I think is really nice. I mean, I would have the game wasn't, you know, too long, but uh, I definitely recommend once you've beaten the game, going back and replaying the final chapter just to see the other ending. I think it's worth it. But uh, both are legitimately chilling, regardless. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, just shout out to uh, shout out to Red Candle Games for doing multiple endings in an independent point and click adventure game. Yeah. No <laughs> I mean, kidding. That, that's pretty impressive, man. Yeah. Hats off so. to you guys. But I mean, uh, again, you know, this is a mature game. I very much recommend. I very much recommend that most people, if you have any aversion to 
to legitimately terrifying content. If you're somebody who likes to take their Halloween with a dash of the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, uh, <laughs> you might want to stay away from this game. However, if you are really in to a good scare, if you like real hardcore type horror content, then this is absolutely going to be a game for you. This is a game that's not just trying to to, to give you some cheap jump scare or to be some run-of-the-mill you know, horror experience. This is a game that is going out of its way to give you a heart attack. And it almost succeeded <laughs> with me, but I love it for it. Yeah, I, I, I just had such a good time with this. I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. It was the perfect thing to, to bring to our spooky indie showcases. And by the way, uh, there is a free demo available yes. for this. Yes, good call. You can... Just kind of check that out and try it out for free. Again, if you are mature, uh, do, I'm not recommending that kids go and play this if we have no. any young listeners. <laughs> so and it, it basically allows you to play the the prologue of the game, which I would say is, you know, 20 minutes-ish. And it gives you, I think, a really strong idea of, of what you're in for in terms of the content, in terms of the gameplay. I think it's a great little slice of the game to, to use as a demo. So that's on the eShop right now. But if you guys do wind up checking out Detention, and again, we highly recommend that you do, reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about it. That is, again, at All In Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, shoot us a line. And yeah, man, like I said, there's a movie that they made about the game. And uh, if there's any way to watch this, I'd, I'd really like to. Don't worry about it. I got you. I got you. Well, now that we're done talking about Detention, it is time for us to shift gears a little bit. Now, there's been a lot of discourse online especially about a lot of the things that Nintendo has been doing and we thought it was time for us to share our thoughts. Yeah, I mean this is the kind of thing that when when something when there's enough discourse, when there is enough smoke, when there is enough fire, it, it does sort of as as Nintendo content creators, it, we do we sort of feel obligated to address it, give our opinions, and that's exactly what we're going to do right now. Yeah, so even if you're not super huge into Nintendo news. You've probably heard a lot about these stories that we'll be talking about here in uh, the next few minutes. But uh, ultimately, it boils down to, you know, people trying to say that Nintendo's business practices are less than ethical or that, you know, they're mis they're grossly mishandling things. Nintendo is not your friend. Yeah, hashtag Nintendo is not your friend. And there are a few instances of that out there. I mean, when it, whenever it comes to anything, there's always going to be naysayers. When, you're co when your company is big as Nintendo, you're always going to have detractors. You're always going to have people telling you you're doing stuff wrong. However, that is not to say that these are not without merit. That these are completely without merit. No, I mean, not at all. We, we are going to present all sides of the argument here. I think that's super important. When we're talking about this stuff, we need to think objectively and not get, you know, impassioned about it. And, you know, full disclosure, by the way, I mean, you know, we are both huge Nintendo fans. We do a weekly Nintendo podcast. Of course, we love Nintendo and we buy their products and we love covering their stuff. That doesn't mean that we have rose-colored glasses on, at least not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the whole reason that we decided it was finally time for us to really address this head-on was the fact that, you know, as we briefly mentioned in the news segment, a new class action lawsuit has been filed against Nintendo because of the Joy-Con drift issue. And it made headlines because this new lawsuit 
has a 10-year-old child listed as one of the plaintiffs. So that, yeah. that was the headline going into all this, is that 10-year-old sues Nintendo. And, and that's why we felt we needed to say something, because when it, when it gets to that level of ridiculousness, it, it becomes hard to take a serious issue seriously. Not only that, that like that's just the tip of the ridiculous iceberg, because the plaintiffs are also reportedly seeking over $5 million in damages from Nintendo. Yes, because they're annoyed with the Joy-Con drift. They're seeking $5 million from Nintendo. That is, I mean, that's that's a way to grab headlines again. But uh, again, it's, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's it's impossible to take a lawsuit like that seriously. It's it's very akin to one of those people, like we've all heard the, the ridiculous lawsuits against fast food chains, like somebody suing uh mcdonald's because their coffee was too hot you know stuff like that this is very much akin to those types of uh lawsuits however the joy-con drift issue has been something that we've brought up a couple times in the past on the show but we thought it was time for us to finally just look at everything and find out what we think the middle ground the compromise what what the actual problem is and what we think you know, should come of it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about a lot of things here, uh, a lot of things that people have been pointing to as sort of, you know, shady business practices or things that they don't agree with that Nintendo is doing or whatever. But uh, but yes, there's, there's a lot to unpack, but I, I feel like we could probably start with Joy-Con Drift. Nintendo famously makes very well-made products uh, or, you know, for the vast majority of the company's lifespan, they have very famously made very well-made products. Uh, everybody points to the GameCube and how impossible to kill that thing was. Even the original Game Boy, God, I'd try, probably dropped that thing a hundred times. And, you know, it still worked. I still never had a problem with it. However, when it comes to the Nintendo Switch and the Joy-Cons, specifically, since a couple months after the Nintendo Switch came out, back in 2017, people were reporting about this Joy-Con drift issue. And it has been a persistent issue for Nintendo for the past three years. And this latest lawsuit is, again, just that. The latest lawsuit. There was a much larger, there is a much larger class action lawsuit that Nintendo is dealing with because of it that made, you know, worldwide headlines. That is an issue. And I don't think, I think one of the biggest things about this entire issue is the fact that the Joy-Cons are almost $100. If they were 20 bucks a piece, I don't think anybody would care. I think this would have been a non-issue. But because the Joy-Cons themselves, because it is the primary controller for the Nintendo Switch and replacing them costs almost $100, that's a lot of money. It is. And and for full disclosure, like you can send these off to Nintendo for repair and they will freely repair them and stuff, but I, you know, I will say the thing that the lawsuit that we were just talking about pointed to specifically is that the defendant being Nintendo continues to market and sell the products with full knowledge of the Joy-Con drift uh, defect and without disclosing the Joy-Con drift defect to consumers in its marketing promotion or packaging. Now they're kind of totally right about that because Nintendo has, we covered this on the show when it happened, Nintendo has officially acknowledged and apologized for the issue. And yet, they are still selling and not acknowledging the issue at all. Yeah. So I think that that's a 100% fair 
criticism of Nintendo. At this point, the Joy-Con should have a sticker or a label or something on the box that, you know, mentions the drift issue that says that the, these are prone to drift, you know, something to that effect. And I think Nintendo should be very transparent about its efforts to create new Joy-Cons. I think a lot of people are are waiting for the Switch Pro, quote unquote, that should be coming early next year uh, for Nintendo to say something is like, hey, we've got this new console and it's new and improved Joy-Con controls. So uh, I, I don't think Nintendo should wait that long. I think they should be very transparent about their efforts to to fix the issue. If indeed they are actually, you know, trying to manufacture new prototypes, new Joy-Con prototypes to fix the issue. And, you know, while the Joy-Cons are more famously, uh, while they do have that famous drift issue, there is still something you can do about it. If you get a little rubbing alcohol and some Q-tips, I've had a couple issues and uh, the Joy-Cons that I've had drift on, that does help quite a bit for those. I'm not saying the drift will never come back, but a a couple Q-tips and a little... Uh, rubbing alcohol in the joystick reservoirs will, you know, greatly help with that. And that's something that I recommend to people regardless of what system you're playing on. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, well, and it's just, you know, it's the kind of thing that you should just get something and it should just work. And I I think that what this, you know, the lawsuits and stuff are, are pointing to with this as well is that Nintendo, I mean, there's a very real reason why Nintendo has not, address this by removing the product from the shelf or anything, it would be extremely expensive, right? I mean, it would cost a ton of money to a not, you know, to, to a negate the sale of the products that are already out there and to b spend the money it would take to recall them. So, I mean, it seems to me like the solution to this issue would be to, yeah, slap stickers on the packaging for the current ones and maybe sell them at a discounted price or something like that. Maybe like, even if you put them on for, you know, just a little bit off and or whatever, there'd be a lot of people that I think would still buy them. And at least you'd be transparent about it at that point and then replace them, put, put them on the shelves, put new joy cons that don't have the issue on the shelves rather than just waiting for the switch pro to come out and want us to buy all that too. So I, this is one of the instances here where I think people are right to, sort of complain and are right to uh, to think that this is a sort of bad business practice from Nintendo. Um, although I don't think that we should all personally seek $5 million in damages. <laughs> See, that's the problem. That's the problem right there is the fact that you gloss over an important issue by making it kind of ridiculous. When I mentioned those uh, like fast food lawsuits earlier. If you see a lawsuit like that, that's not going to make you think, you know, if you see a lawsuit, somebody trying to sue McDonald's for serving coffee too hot, that's not going to make you hate McDonald's. That's going to make you think, well, that person's just completely out of their mind. And this is kind of a similar situation. Seeking $5 million against Nintendo from something like, a you know, a Joy-Con drift issue, that's, I don't think that that's going to make most reasonable people hate Nintendo. It's going to make, I think, most reasonable people think that you know, these people are out of their minds. And I know the 10-year-old has no say in this. He or she is just, you know, listed as a plaintiff, probably just to grab headlines. But you, you have to, if you're trying to address an issue like this, I feel like you have to mitigate 
you know, you have to rein in your expectations. I mean, you and I completely agree that Nintendo has mishandled this fairly significantly, but you know, they shouldn't be paying out $5 million to each family. You know, if they did, if they did give out, you know, as an apology, if they did give out like a Nintendo eShop credit to people, I think that would go pretty far, you know, since the Joy-Cons are so expensive, if they did wind up doing some uh, voucher redemption thing, you know, we're sorry for the Joy-Con drift, you know, we want to get back to our, our fan base. If they did something like that, I think that would go a long way toward toward fixing the issues. But they're obviously, as you mentioned, they're not going to be pulling the, the controllers from the shelves. People are still going to need controllers. They're still going to have to sell them. But yes, put the labels on be more transparent about what you're doing to fix this issue. And then maybe a little bit more play testing in the future. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's like, these little things have a lot of technology in them and I'm sure there's a lot of room for error in them. So I'm, I'm sure that a lot of that, you know, is, is kind of unavoidable, but when you're redesigning them anyway, presumably they're redesigning them anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, I almost feel like, when new Joy-Cons come out, they should have some sort of program in place where you can send off your old ones and get them replaced for free. Or yeah, eShop credit, like you said, would be good. I, I also want to shout out, just before we move on to, to other issues, I just want to shout out that we also have to acknowledge when Nintendo does do consumer-friendly things. A good example of this that I think of immediately, right, is the 3DS, okay? For folks who are... 3DS owners on the ground floor, you might remember this. Yep. I bought a 3DS on launch day and I paid however much it was. And then just a few months later, Nintendo put a significant price drop on the machine, like an actual SKU level price drop. And a lot of people were upset. And what Nintendo did was actually pretty nice. It didn't like make up for lost money or whatever, but they rolled out what was called the 3DS Ambassador. Uh, rewards where if you were somebody that had purchased a 3ds in those early days before the price drop happened you were entitled to a bunch of free games that still you can't get otherwise i'll admit that frustrated me oh yeah yeah just i mean when they when they made those games available on the 3ds i'm like cool we'll get them at some point yeah (laughs) yeah nope yeah, I, I mean, I thought that that was something where I was like, okay, like, you know, they're at least acknowledging it and they're doing a little bit of a of something. So I, I think that would be better than than anything else. And, and one last thing that I'll point out before we move on from Joy-Con Drift is that there are recent reports, even just as recently as last week, uh, from the law firm that is handling all of these cases. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the law firm's name. It's, it's abbreviated as CSKND. Uh, They're handling a lot of this stuff. They are claiming that Nintendo is saying that it is not a real problem and hasn't caused anyone any inconvenience, which I don't think is true (laughs) because Nintendo has publicly apologized for it. Yeah. But, but I mean, this law firm is staking that on their reputation. So uh, there's also that to throw into this, you know, to throw into this cauldron as it were. So, I mean, I think we both agree that Joy-Con drift has not been handled correctly, but that's, you know, that's not to say I, I don't agree with, with that, but you know, there, there are some things that I think we should talk about also with Nintendo that people have taken issue with that. I think we can make a little bit of, more of an argument for. Yeah. So uh, I think another issue we need to talk about is <laughs> just how many people have come out 
when it comes to the backlash against Mario 3D All-Stars. Well, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> honestly, just the handling of Super Mario's 35th anniversary in general between 3D All-Stars, between Super Mario 35, between the pins. I mean, there's there's kind of a lot to unpack just in that that people are upset about. So to start with Mario 3D All-Stars, a lot of people are apparently really upset at the way the collection itself is handled. Uh, there are a lot of people out there saying that it's pathetic. And I've even heard some people saying that it's beyond, it's indefensible, which blows my mind. The the people's biggest issues is the, the presumed or the perceived lack of a cavalcade of bells and whistles on this collection that it doesn't have, you know, a 3d model viewer or concept art or this and that, and this and that, and this and that. And people talk about other collections like, well, this Mega Man collection had concept art, you know, this Kirby collection had a timeline and a, and a little history segment. And I'm like, yeah, they did. But to call what we're getting in the Mario 3D All-Stars a pathetic and be straight up indefensible is ridiculous to me. Yeah, I mean, I I want to, you know, so, and I, I saw headlines going around like uh, Super Mario 3D All-Stars is Nintendo at its worst and stuff like that. And and that's that's all fine if, if that's your opinion. I don't necessarily, when I'm thinking about this, am I, you know, would I have liked to see something like a concept art viewer or whatever in, in the game? Sure. I mean, I always want more, right? Everybody always wants more. Yeah. But I, I've got two kind of major things here. The first is kind of the obvious one of like that. I think a lot of Nintendo fans will tell you, especially the ones that bought this. And by the way, a lot of people bought this game. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is the fact that like just simply having these games collected and bundled on the switch is just amazing in itself. And these were not just completely lazy ports, by the way, I understand that they're running on emulation, but you know, Mario sunshine has not been made available since it came out on anything other than the GameCube and Mario Galaxy, they actually had to go in and alter the control schemes. And so, I mean, it's not like they just copy and pasted and made it work on the Switch. So, like, to me, I don't look at this as as lazy whatsoever and upscaling things and stuff. There there is work that is done in this. Um, And they do have, you know, soundtracks and stuff that 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 is in the game. and, And I do like the way it's presented on a personal level. But then, B, another thing that I want to point to, just for this whole Nintendo is not your friend argument as a generalization, guys, no company is your friend. It is a business, and they want to make money. Of course they do. It's, you know, and and if you take issue with it, vote with your wallet, because I'm willing to bet that a lot of the people that are complaining about these bought the game anyway. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like... If I if I take issue with something, I stop giving it my money. And that's how you're going to affect it. That's how you're going to, you know, spark change. If you really have that big of a problem with it, vote with your wallet. I always encourage people to vote with your wallet. So that that's my big takeaway with a lot of this stuff because like if you're going to complain about it, take issue with it and just, you know, spread vitriol online without actually doing anything monetarily about it, I, I just, I don't think you have a leg to stand on. And again, your opinion is your opinion. But when I hear somebody look at a game collection that offers a player 
upwards of a hundred hours worth of gameplay of some of the best right. game design ever created that offers upwards of a hundred gameplay hours of upscaled, you know, several of the best games ever made and still finds a way to call it indefensible like that. That just blows my mind. I mean, just for the simple sake of having all three of these games collected in one place, if you were going to try to buy the individual versions of these games at a, at a retro game store or something, just to get all three of these games, you'd still spend well over $60. That's not even talking about the controllers or the consoles that you would need to play them in their original state. In terms of value, these games and the, you know, over 100 hours worth of gameplay and the fact that they are, yes, especially Mario 64 and Mario Galaxy on the short list of best games ever made, you know, to come out and say that that's indefensible as a $60 value, especially when you throw in the upscales and the hours worth of soundtracks that you're getting. To say that that's indefensible as a $60 value is ridiculous to me. Now, again, should we want more? We're always going to want more. We could have gotten Mario Galaxy 2, which admittedly would have been nice. And people would have said, well, why didn't you add Mario 3D Land? You know, people are making such a big thing out of these bells and whistles, the vast majority of which people would look at for five minutes and then completely forget about. They would add ultimately minutes to an over 100 hour experience. And people are making it seem like this is the greatest travesty in the history of video game collections. Now, does the Mario 3D All-Stars have the best UI? You know, maybe not. I am a really big fan of the Kirby Dream Collection. I love it. I think it's a fantastic collection. But as a value, I mean, it's it's incredibly hard to argue that, again, over 100 hours worth of upscaled greatest game design ever is is indefensible as a $60 value. So. So let's try to rein it back a little bit, people. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I, I mean, and, and I mean, in terms of, yeah, like you said, the value of it, I think is there the, you know, if you want to, if you think it's lazy, fine. If you think there's not enough content, fine. Just don't buy it. You know, that it's just, it really is as simple as that. And another issue that I think is a little more egregious that I think I agree a little bit more with people on is with this and with Super Mario 35, it is only going to be, as far as we know, and they could roll back on this. I think we mentioned that briefly last week on the show. But as far as we know, the current plan is for these games to be delisted and made completely unavailable after March 31st, 2021. So that's a little bit more frustrating. And that's a little bit more anti-consumer, I think, than the package itself or than the games themselves. That one's a little more confusing. Well. It's it's definitely a unique thing because games, once they're created, there's just always been this idea that they've just lived forever. They've come out and then they've just existed. So this one, this one is certainly unique. And the fact that Nintendo is trying to tell people that, you know, that's not going to be the case with these games. They'll be out for this short time and then they won't exist anymore. Obviously, Mario 3D All-Stars is still going to exist forever on the used game market at the very least. True. But that is interesting. This is also an issue that comes up with the pin set that was announced at the Mario 35th Anniversary Direct as well. So we can kind of all lump all these together. But yeah, uh, I mean, it would, with Mario 35 specifically being a free game, uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, after just the couple weeks that you and I have had with the game, I think at the six month part, it may have lived its lifespan 
already, regardless. But I mean, maybe, maybe, but I, I think that you know there there is there's going to be an audience for it that wants to play it past the March thirty first deadline or whatever. And it does seem like the kind of thing where it's like, well, why even bother taking it down? Just let people continue to play it. And, and, you know, if they don't want to continue to support it, that's fine. But I think that people would like to still be able to play it. And then, you know, I, I've had my own theories about all this stuff, too, that I've talked about on the show. I think last week I mentioned that I think that what they'll probably do with 3D All-Stars is uh, they'll probably break it up into individual games and sell them for, you know, 20 bucks or something. And I think that's probably how they'll do uh, Galaxy 2. But... So it's going to be like you won't be able to get the package anymore, but you'll probably still be able to get the games. I don't know they're going to do that, but that's my theory. I also have a theory about the pins, but I won't get into that. But I will say that it's super frustrating when they advertise these pins and they're talking about, oh, we're celebrating Mario's 35th anniversary with these pins. And the only reason at all that I was able to get my hands on some is because I was there boom, right at noon, and I, for almost three hours, tried to get those pins. And if you miss that boat, you miss that boat, and you're just not, you know, just, oh, sorry. Ultimately, and a lot of people who listen to this probably are already screaming at us, but yes, we know this is intentionally creating scarcity. Nintendo games have always maintained their value and even exceeded their value once it goes into the retro, once it goes into the used gaming market. It, it very much seems like it's Nintendo obviously trying to influence that even more so with these pins, with Mario 35, with uh, especially Mario 3D All-Stars. Now, I think that this is just a strategy saying that they're going to be delisted in March. This is just a way for Nintendo to, to force people to kind of nudge people into buying a Nintendo Switch when they might otherwise be buying a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox Series X at launch to say that, well, if, if we don't get this Switch now that we might not have access to Mario 3D All-Stars or we might not have right. access to Mario 35. So, you know, let's hold off on the PS5 for right now because we don't want to miss the boat on this. But I mean, they've, they've made so many millions of copies of Mario 3D All-Stars at this point. I, I, I don't know, especially in the next few years, I don't know if people are ever going to have that hard of a time, you know, getting their hands on one, but I don't know. We'll see. But ultimately, yes, it is really interesting. It does, as you've, it, it does ultimately feel a little anti-consumer. That's fair. Uh, and anybody who has the switch right now that has any interest in getting them has already gotten the games has already downloaded Mario 35. But when it comes to the pins, yeah, that was that was really frustrating how they handled that. And that's 100% fair. Yeah. Well, and, and you know what, too? And people are being ridiculous. So they always are with Nintendo collectibles, right? People are hammering that site. The site absolutely melted. I think that it could have been handled completely differently. I theorize that these pins were probably in limited quantity because I think that these were probably the pins they were going to give away at E3. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could very, yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, that's that's sort of what I was thinking. I, like, you know, they always have merch at E3. I think these were probably for E3. And so they had this batch and now they're sitting on it. And that's why they worked it in. Now they've got more waves coming, apparently. Apparently there are going to be at least one more wave of pins. So maybe they'll handle that differently. We'll see. Uh, another quick point just before we move on. I actually have got the, a lot of people point to the previous Mario All-Stars, uh, they did for the 25th anniversary 10 years ago on Wii. Uh, and you can currently grab that on eBay for about $30. So they're 
producing these, yes, they're delisting them. Yes, that kind of sucks. But, you know, they're producing so many of these that I, I don't think it's going to be like some ridiculous collector's item, you know. But, you know, just to go back to your point real quick, people are going to be buying Switches because of this. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I know a lot of folks, myself included, that bought this game twice. <laughs> because of the scarcity. I wanted to have it digitally to play and physically to have as a collector. And I know a lot of people who did that. So, I mean, they just doubled up on their money right there on me. And and I mean, like, call that anti-consumer. It's smart. It is smart. It's a shrewd business move, if nothing else. And again, at the end of the day, Nintendo is a business. I mean, Nintendo knows that a lot of its products are going to be collector's items, and they figure that Mario 3D All-Stars, maybe more so than most of their products, is going to be a collector's item. And from their perspective, you know, they don't want to overproduce because, you know, if they produce, you know, again, despite the fact that Nintendo games do retain their value, if you produce 50 million copies of something, it's not going to, you know, you may be able to find it for $20, $30 versus if they produce four or five million copies of it, and then it goes for $60, $70, $80. And all of a sudden it has that heightened mystique about it in the next few years as opposed to, you know, oh, that's worthless. I can get it whenever I want to. And that's Nintendo, arguably from their perspective, trying to protect their brand and protect their their games. But yes, from a consumer, it is frustrating. Uh, We talked about it last week, but we will very briefly bring up Steve's inclusion in Smash Brothers again because... There has been a lot of people talking about, like, legitimately angry, legitimately toxic about Nintendo's decision to include Steve in Smash Brothers. And, I mean, Sakurai was, you know, (laughs) kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, they forced me to put Steve in here. But, uh, again, ultimately, as much as you could say it's a money-grubbing tactic, Again, Steve deserves to be in there, and there are millions of people who are incredibly excited, millions of especially younger gamers who are incredibly excited at Steve's inclusion. And, you know, some of us older gamers, gamers of a certain age, may not be as excited, but it's not for us. And, you know, we don't don't want to belabor the point because, again, we talked about this last week, but if you're not excited about Steve's inclusion in Smash Brothers... Play one of the other 100 characters that Nintendo has gifted us right. in that game. I'm, I'm sorry that you're upset about less than 1% of the playable character base in Smash Brothers. But there are millions of people who are incredibly excited about Steve. Even beyond the potential crossover sales that Nintendo could get from Minecraft fans because they put Steve in the game. There's, again, millions of people excited that they're including Steve in the game. So re- rein it back a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't want to take anything away from people who are excited about this. It, it is, if you don't care about Steve, that's totally fine. It, it can be, guess what, a, a net neutral. Like, it doesn't have to, you know, people are just so, I feel like, entitled. If you go on Twitter and you search the yeah. term, Nintendo is not your friend. I'm looking at a tweet right now, and I'm going to, you know, uh, not include the expletives that are in this tweet. But... This tweet essentially says, annoys me that corporate Nintendo forced Sakurai to compromise his vision to put in a cheap cash grab character. If you guys watched that Smash Brothers Presents where Sakurai was doing a deep dive into the character, this is not a cheap cash grab character. This is maybe the most involved character they have ever put in the game. Um, So this is not some throwaway 
cash grab thing that Sakurai just included because he was forced to. Of course, you know, Sakurai even said that he's, you know, sometimes he has to put in characters that he's not personally like some huge fan of, but Steve deserved to be in, in the game. There are millions of people who are excited. Minecraft's the biggest game in the world. And I, I do think it's, I do think it's unfair to take that away from it. And, and I mean, people are just so upset. And again, I go back to the vote with your wallet thing. If you're, if you're really not okay with it, just move on. Let the people that are excited about it, be happy about it and just don't buy it. You know, I, I just, nobody's forcing you to do anything. So, I mean, that's what I fall back on with this. Just quit being toxic online. Honestly. Yeah. That's what it boils because yeah. so many of these issues, yes, and we've admitted that there's a lot of legitimate issues here uh, that Nintendo needs to do something about. But being consistently toxic online is is not going to do anything. I'll uh, I'll tell a real quick anecdote just bef- you know before we move on to the next thing. Um, somebody was talking to Greg Mail's uh, head of Rare and and you know creator of Banjo and stuff like that, Banjo Kazooie, about. No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. Um, <laughs> Banjo's inclusion in Smash and like, why isn't there, you know, a proper Banjo 3 yet? And he made the astute point, something that I hadn't really considered that there are more people today. There are more video game players, more fans today that don't care about Banjo than the ones that do. You know what I mean? Like people like me, I freaked out and lost my mind and probably actually took a few years off of my life when Banjo was announced for smash but you know my little brother my nephews they don't care about banjo kazooie so this is the inverse like to to somebody like that they might say well whatever why like why is this baron bird getting added to the game just like we are with steve and minecraft it's the you know the fan base is bigger than just you i mean you know look outside of yourself a little bit and, and acknowledge that this is actually a really cool announcement for some people and for us like we watched that presentation and i i think they've done a a, a lot of work to this character so I, don't, I really just don't think that that is a fair take for steve so anyway that's all i'll say about steve <laughs> um i think another thing that we need to move on as we kind of get to the end of this discussion is ports because a lot of, and a lot of the the stuff that I've seen online, a lot of discourse has been made about Nintendo's Nintendo's sort of inclination to port games and release them on Switch and charge full price sixty dollars for them. And we can point to stuff that that they are doing a lot. You know, we talked about Pikmin Three Deluxe and the the stuff that they're doing for that, and Mario Three D World. Uh, you know, Deluxe is gonna is gonna be like a huge undertaking it seems like but then there are some that are a little more lacking in content like tropical freeze that they still charged 60 dollars for so i i think that on a case-by-case basis that might also be a bit of a fair argument for the way nintendo is handling some of these ports yeah had it been tropical freeze deluxe uh i i think that it would have been fully justified as a 60 dollar release i love the donkey kong country series i think they're fantastic but they basically just ported it over from the Wii U. And of course we all know that they ported, they're porting all these Wii U games just because, you know, so many people never had the opportunity to play them because of everything that happened with the Wii U. And it's great that they're bringing all these amazing games over to a system that, you know, over 65 million people own now, but 
to release something at $60 for it to kind of fall flat on its face and then to just, you know, just take the code, move it from a Wii U disc to a Switch cartridge and then just re-release it at $60. Yeah, I think with Tropical Freeze specifically, I think that was, you know, I mean, you and I both, again, still bought it. We still really enjoyed the game, but... I think they should have done a little bit more with that one. Now, when it comes to all the other deluxe ports, I think most of them are fully justified uh, in their in their full price tag because of all the extra work that they put in to 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 bring that game to the Switch and all the extra content that they've added. Obviously, we have Pikmin Three coming out in just a couple of weeks, and it looks like they have added quite a bit to that game. And there's several things that I'm really looking forward to, specifically from Pikmin Three Deluxe. And of course, we've got Bowser's Fury. Even though you know Mario 3D World is not called Mario 3D World Deluxe, they are adding what looks to be an entire new, you know, story mode to that game. So, I mean, I think that's going to be fully justified at a, at a $60 price tag. But like you said, you know, case by case basis. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's stuff that sort of falls somewhere in between. You can point to Tokyo Mirage sessions or, or whatever. And uh, Bayonetta two, where it's like, okay, they didn't like light the world on fire with, with those switch ports or whatever. They're not going to quite that extent, but yeah, I mean, I think on a case by case basis, some of these are completely justified and they're coming to a brand new audience. I mean, you got to think about that. The Wii U, only sold 13 million units lifetime. That's a lot of folks that haven't played a lot of these games. So I, I just don't see why the act of porting them over to the Switch is a bad thing. And if Nintendo wants to charge $60 for them, that's that's neither here nor there. But I, I just think to to dog them for the notion of porting the games at all is is unfair. Now, something that we should kind of briefly mention too that that was a little bit of a shady practice was yeah. when they announced Pikmin 3 Deluxe. Yeah. They did delist the original game from the Wii U eShop where you could have bought that. Because, uh, you know, that that's another argument that I would make for a lot of these is like, if you don't want to buy the port, the Wii U still exists, people, and you can still go out there and buy them. But they did delist Pikmin 3 from the eShop. And they did double back on that. It is now available on there again. But there was a yes. good period of a few weeks there where you could not buy that game on the Wii U eShop immediately after they announced the deluxe version for Switch. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. That was a jerk move, Nintendo. That really was. <laughs> yeah. That was a jerk move. I mean, that's fairly indefensible. <laughs> yeah. So you, you could be talking about how, you know, well, they were trying to nudge people into getting a Switch if they want to play it so they can get the deluxe version. You know, if people still have the Wii U, Nintendo throw them a bone man i mean we're we're not we, we may be huge nintendo fans we are not afraid to look at these matters objectively and call them out when they need to be called out but i, I think when it comes to ports you know take it on a case-by-case -case basis see what you like and and i think ultimately like fans should view these things not as like some obligation not as something that you like have to buy not as some sort of like that like they don't have a vice grip on your wallet. If you want the thing, you want the thing. And if you don't, you don't. If you agree with it, you agree with it. If you don't, you don't. It doesn't mean that you have to go online and spew acid all over the internet. It, it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, call the company evil or whatever. I mean, you just, I, I just, again, I'll, I'll go back to what I've been saying this whole time. Vote with your wallet. Don't be toxic online. And just like what you like and dislike what you dislike. That's okay. 
It's actually okay to take it that simply. It's just the kind of thing that, and I know, yeah, I know this is a bit of a heavy topic. This wasn't like some, you know, <laughs> this is a little more serious than we typically go or whatever, but these are the kind of things that need to be addressed, I think, as a community. And I think that us as Nintendo fans, we, we need to, you know, we, we sort of need to take it on a case-by-case basis and we, we need to support the things we like and, you know, and, and don't give our money to the things we don't like. And, and I think it should be as simple as that. And Nintendo will get the message. They're not some evil corporate bigwig, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be like that. Things in Nintendo could be so much worse. So much worse, people. Do you realize how easily they could have fit microtransactions and predatory money practices into all of their first-party releases, and they haven't? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mentioned this when it came out, but Kirby Fighters 2, good recent example of a game that honestly could have so easily been just a free-to-play, microtransaction-laden cash grab, and wasn't. It was a $20 game that you could get a ton of gameplay hours out of yeah they could have very easily charged three dollars a character and a dollar for each of the extra skins they could have very very easily leached 70 or 80 dollars out of people for that game and they didn't they could have very very easily leached so much more money out of people with smash brothers they could have been charging ten dollars a character they could have been charging fifty dollars for the the combat packs but, you know, yes, they've had a couple season passes, but they could have been so, so much more predator, uh, predatory with their, their money practices with so many more of their games. And yes, again, we've mentioned that several of the things they've done, especially in the past few months, in the past year, we think were the wrong decision. And a couple of them were admittedly a little indefensible, <coughs> Pikmin 3, but to their credit... Nintendo did roll back on that. Pikmin 3 is back on the Wii U eShop. And to their credit, Nintendo did come out and apologize for the Joy-Con drift. Now we're still waiting for them to do some other things about it. But not only could things be much worse, we are actually getting, you know, results. We are actually getting baby steps, maybe admittedly, but we are actually getting positive uh, results from Nintendo about these issues that people have brought up, which is a lot more than I can say for things like, you know, Bethesda or EA. Yeah. And I think something too, that we have to do here is, you know, to kind of go with what you're saying, we have to take Nintendo's good things too, and add that to our equation. Cause think about the things that Nintendo has done that are consumer friendly. I mean, we can talk all day long about anti-consumer practices, but the reality is, all of the free DLC that they have included for so many of their games, like Ring Fit, like Animal Crossing, and that's just this year. All of that stuff, all of the things that they're doing for free, all of the things they are rolling back on, all of these practices that people are complaining about that they are listening to, I, I think that's important to consider as well. I, I mean, I don't think it's enough to just dog them for the things that they're doing that we don't like. I think we also have to factor in the fact that they are trying and they are doing some really good things. Uh, I point to something like Splatoon, right? I mean, Splatoon 2, they were constantly adding Splatfests and events and supporting that game and ARMS, where they added all these free DLC characters to that game. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mario Tennis Aces, which they're still supporting. These, these games that are getting constant support from Nintendo... I, I think you have to consider stuff like that. 
Yeah, in addition to the fact that their online service is like, what, a third of the price of their competitors? And the fact that if you have Switch Online, you have access to dozens and dozens of free Nintendo and Super Nintendo games to play for free. I pay $35 a year, and I've got like seven other people on my plan, and we all have access to Switch Online and all of those games. That's a very good deal, folks. So... You know, if you want to start spouting poison, I, I I don't know if how much I I don't know if I have anything for you at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly I don't want to come off as like scolding the community. I, I just think you have to be reasonable, you know, folks. I, I think we just got to be reasonable about this stuff. I think we gotta, you know, cherry pick, and I think we have to as fans uh, take the good with the bad and acknowledge both the good and the bad and vote with your wallet and and you know. I, I'm certainly open to conversation about this if it's reasonable and civil. Uh, we always, you know, all the time on the show, we we want you guys to reach out. We want you guys to hit us up again, Facebook, Twitter. That's at All End Podcast, and and we want to have these conversations for sure. I'm happy to talk with anybody that wants to in a civil way about these issues. So um, keep the conversation rolling as much as you want, as long as it's civil and as long as we're taking all of this stuff reasonably. I think that's the ultimate point that. That, is, that we're making here with this segment and with this main discussion is we just have to be reasonable. Yeah, just like Seth said, if you are, obviously we know these are divisive topics, but if you do want to reach out to us and let us know what you think, do please do that. Reach out to us at All In Podcast on Facebook, at All In Podcast on Twitter. And once again, if you do like what you're listening to, do please subscribe to All In Podcast on whatever service you are listening to us on. Thank you very much for that. And, you know, I was looking... Actually, earlier when we were doing the Indie Showcase, Seth, and it looks like Detention is being listed on Netflix. It's not available yet, but it looks like it's actually being listed on Netflix. Oh, nice. Well, that's cool. Maybe we can watch it a little sooner than we thought. Oh, well, (laughs) we're going to be watching it even sooner than that, bud. What do you mean? So I figured, you know, we really both wanted to see this movie since we played the game and we loved it so much. So I thought, you know, I'd maybe sign us up for Mandarin Taiwanese classes uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. What? Yeah. Well, you know, we both want to see the movie. It's always good to learn a new language. Who knows when we might have reason to go to Taiwan, but, uh, yeah, you, me tomorrow, some Mandarin Taiwanese. Dude, I'm pretty sure we could have just found it somewhere with English subtitles or like wait for it on Netflix or something. But this is so much more interesting. Come on. Ugh. Guys, I, I better see if I can cancel these classes. Uh, I've been Seth ate my neighbors. Oh, we're not canceling. We're going to see him tomorrow. All right, guys. Tsai Chen. I have been Dr. Eric Gad, and we'll catch you guys next week. See, I've already learned something.